The Courting of Tony Stark by Boom Bang Bing A Marvel Fan Fiction Read by God of Laundry Baskets Chapter 2, Part 2 Somehow they make it home. That's the most detail she can go into. She's on a roof, then she's in Tony's foyer, the in-between a blur. There was flying in his arms, then a jet. There was Vanco, Hammer, and Natalie. And then they were here. She remembers kissing, quitting, yelling, thinking, if I let you out of my sight again, you're going to die, and letting him scoop her up into his arms and take off. Perhaps she's going into shock, it really would be the only reasonable response to this day, this whole life. Ms. Potts? Miss Potts? Ms. Potts? Pepper! She startles, finally, at Jarvis's calls. He has never referred to her by first name, and certainly not that name. You need to go into the workshop, he says gently. She turns on her heels and traces the path without thinking. It's only when she reaches the top of the staircase that it occurs to her to ask, Why? Mr. Stark's vitals are dangerously low. There's another few minutes that pass her by, and then she's kneeling on the cold floor of Tony's workshop, his completely destroyed workshop, what the hell, with two fingers pressed to his clammy neck. It seems as if he lasted just long enough to make it out of the suit before collapsing on the ground. His eyelids flutter open for a second, and she thinks that she sees the corner of his mouth twitch before his eyes roll back and he's out cold, no matter how hard she shakes him. She drags his head onto her lap and watches him breathe, shallow and unsteady for a moment. Ms. Potts. Jarvis says into the unnaturally quiet room. He needs medical attention. Right, right. She pulls one of his limp arms around her shoulders, wraps her arm around his back, and struggles to her feet. It is far, far too easy to lift him. Christ, she mutters. How much weight have you lost? He is approximately ten pounds lighter than his normal weight, Jarvis supplies. She shakes her head. She didn't notice. She didn't notice Obadiah, and she didn't notice this. Somehow, she manages to get him over and into one of the cars, one of the few that has more than two seats. Jarvis rolls the garage door up, and she starts the engine. There's not enough room to turn the car around amongst the debris, so she has to back up the ramp, crossing her fingers that Tony's not going to roll off the back seat. It's dark out, almost eleven, but the driveway is lit up, and for a moment she can't work out why. When the shock of the bright light subsides and her eyes adjust, she's able to make out several black SUVs blocking the way. She leans on the horn and bashes at the window down button. Get out of the way, she yells, hanging out of the window. 
Get out of the way before I run you down. The door of the lead car opens and a figure steps out. Pepper can't quite make out who it is against the glare of the headlights. Not that it matters. She smashes on the horn a couple of times and revs the engine. She'll drive straight over them if she has to. The figure strides towards the car and, in the winged mirror, the image of Natalie, or whoever she is, coalesces. She opens the driver's side door and says, Get in the back, in a tone that brooks no arguments. Pepper lets go of the horn, stares at Natalie for a second, then twists around and climbs between the front seats. Natalie opens the driver's side door, flicks her wrist towards the other cars, all of which begin to pull back, leaving the path unobstructed. Peppers barely moved Tony out of the way enough to sit down when Natalie slides the clutch forward. Seatbelt, she says, then hold on to him. She gives Pepper a second to strap in and arrange Tony on her lap before she backs up, looking over her shoulder, and spins the wheel as far as it will go. The tires screech on the asphalt as the car turns in an arc, bounces and shudders, and then they're out on the road. How fast does this thing go? She asks. It's Tony's, Pepper says. She digs her fingers into Tony's shoulders, hard enough to leave bruises. That's going to be the least of his problems, she thinks distantly. So fast. Natalie grins. Good. The hospital isn't a hospital. It's a vast warehouse in the middle of nowhere. Even if it had been light out, Pepper doubts she'd have been able to work out where they were going, what with all the shortcuts and sharp turns they took to get there. A man with dark hair graying at the temples who looks like he hasn't had enough sleep whisks Tony away the moment they arrive leaving Pepper surrounded by men who could honestly be clones of Coulson. In her head, she can hear Tony saying, Oh God, is this the Matrix? And she laughs, drawing strange looks from all sides. Jim arrives a little while later, escorted by another clone to the corner that someone directed Pepper to sit and wait in with a cup of truly disgusting coffee. The only thing separating her from Tony is a cloth screen. She can see the shadows of the doctor and nurses moving around the solitary bed. By next week, she imagines, this facility will be long gone. Jim sits down next to her. Are you okay? he asks. She laughs again and it's a high-pitched ugly sound. <laughs> Not even slightly, she says. He nods. His hands are shaking, she notes. How is he? Collapsed. I don't know. So that rash was something, Jim murmurs almost to himself. Then, so, you and Tony... I don't know, she says. 
I don't know that I can with him. Is it? Are you all right with this? Of course I am, he says. This was what I thought was going to happen. I mean, not this, but he loves you. I think he always has, and I think the same is true for you. Maybe, she says. She risks another look at him. His face doesn't betray any kind of emotion except concern. But I wasn't kidding about this being too much. He's too much. Jim shrugs. I guess, but eleven years, Pep. You obviously like something about him. She imagines her younger self pointing to the adventures and the glamour, the tornado of personality that Tony's always been. That's what attracted her to him and this world in the beginning. There is nothing glamorous about sitting in a plastic chair in a draughty-converted warehouse, though. Miss Potts, Colonel Rhodes, the dark-haired man from before, stands in front of them, clasping his hands behind his back and tracking the movements of the agent out of the corner of his eyes. Mr. Stark is going to be fine. Do you want to see him? Pepper is already up, empty coffee cup rolling away somewhere, forgotten. The doctor starts at how close she is, then vaguely indicates towards the curtain-offed area. He's unconscious. He will be for a while. He's suffering the after-effects of paladinium poisoning, dehydration, and extreme exhaustion. Honestly, it's a miracle that he stayed up right for... Honestly, it's a miracle he stayed upright for as long as he did. That's Tony, Pepper hears Jim say as she pushes the screen back. Our little miracle. Tony looks, all at once, very young and very old, his face pale, dark smudges under his eyes, totally vulnerable and exposed. There's a drip snaking its way up his arm and a heart monitor beeping softly. How long, she says, then turns back to look at the doctor. How long does he have to stay here for? He needs to stay on the drip for at least ten hours, then... He looks around the warehouse. He'd be better off at home. Okay she says, and draws a chair to his bedside. She can do ten hours. She waited three months for him once. Tony wakes up once on the ride back home, looks at Pepper, and promptly passes back out again. Classy as ever, she mutters, pushing his hair back from his face. Jim offers to stay for a couple of days to help out with Tony. It's probably a good idea because she would have never been able to get him upstairs on her own. But once she's back in the house, clutching the bag of medicine that the doctor gave her and listening to the robots beginning repairs to the basement under Jarvis's omniscient eye, all she wants is for everyone to leave. Just everyone... 
has to get out right at this very moment or she is going to scream. Jim takes her hushed, please leave, as his cue to haul ass, and perhaps she threatens an agent with bodily harm if he doesn't vacate the premise immediately, but she hasn't slept in days, it seems, and she feels like she's owed this much of a breakdown. Be assured that no one will get into this house without your permission, Jarvis says as she climbs the stairs. She sighs. What would I do without you? I ask myself that daily, Ms. Potts, he replies and lowers the lights as she passes by. It's 9 a.m. and brilliantly sunny outside, but when she gets to the spare room that's serving as Tony's bedroom until the gaping hole in his actual bedroom floor is fixed, the giant windows are darkened. She stands for a moment in the doorway, watching the unsteady rise and fall of his chest. At least he's not so pale anymore. She considers going to one of the other spare bedrooms, but the idea that he might wake up alone, or that she might, is too much to bear. She slips her shoes off and pads quietly into the room, sheds her jacket, and climbs onto the bed in her skirt, shirt, and stockings, the doctor's bag still in her hand. Tony makes a quiet noise as she collapses on top of the covers, and she just barely has time to check that he's okay before the pull of sleep is too much. She wakes up to something nudging her in the arm. She tries to roll away from it, face pressed into the blanket beneath her, and something rustles. Tony, she thinks, then again, Tony! She pulls herself up and rescues the squashed paper bag from between them. Is this all I had to do to get you into bed with me? He asks, words slurring a little. He frowns. I feel weird. I'm not surprised, she says. The clock says it's almost ten in the evening. She rubs her face and gets off the bed, heading for the bathroom. Pepper, he calls, and he sounds so pathetic that she has to stop herself from running back over to him. In the bathroom, she grabs a cup and fills it with water from the faucet, then quickly returns to the bed. Tony looks relieved. She sets the cup down on the bedside table and starts to rearrange the pillows underneath his head, propping him up enough to drink the water. What? Pepper, what's... He watches as she empties the bag out on top of him, grabs a couple of the bottles. Three times a day, the doctor had said, pills with some incomprehensible name that would help neutralize the lingering effects of the palladinium, painkillers to make it hurt less. She shakes out the doses into her hand and then lifts them to his mouth. Open your mouth. What are those? he asks, eyeing them suspiciously. Things that are going to make you feel better, she says. Open. Thankfully, he does, because it wouldn't have been the first time that she's had to force-feed him medication, 
and she drops them onto his tongue, then brings the cup up to his lips. He quickly takes over, holding it, draining the entire thing in seconds. I probably shouldn't be taking strange white pills without knowing what they are first, he observes and wipes his mouth with the back of his hand. I saw that on an after-school special once. They're from the doctor, she says. What doctor? The doctor that put you on a drip and made sure you didn't die. Tony, you've been unconscious for a day. Oh, he says looking around. That explains a lot. She can't help but laugh, sitting down heavily on the edge of the bed next to him. She hunches forward and cradles her head in her hands, trying to quell the hysterical knots of nervous energy in her chest. It's getting harder and harder to breathe, and she thinks that maybe only now the shock is wearing off, leaving her laughing and gasping and hiccuping. She can feel Tony shift behind her, twisting around awkwardly until he gets his arms around her. His grip feels unnaturally weak, and it only makes her gasp more. God, sometimes she wishes she could go back to the days when she thought nothing could touch him. I'm sorry, he says against her ear, his beard tickling her neck. I'm a fucking asshole. Please don't get upset over me. Too late, she says, and lets him try to comfort her for a couple of minutes, though she knows that Tony has little concept of how to comfort someone if it doesn't involve throwing money at the source of the problem. Eventually, she shakes him off and turns around to look at him. Do you want something to eat? Um, yeah, he says and looks at the way she's twisting her fingers together. She forces her hands apart. Okay, I'll make you something. Stay in bed. If you need something, get Jarvis to call me. Pepper. She gets up and puts some space between them. Stay here, she says firmly. Scout's honor, he says and makes a lewd hand gesture. He sleeps a lot for the first couple of days a combination of the drugs and sheer exhaustion. While he's out, she fields calls, delegates tasks, and goes through every single thing Tony owns. She wants to know how and why, but she doesn't think she can bear just to come out and ask him, so she goes through the pockets of every item of his clothing, checks out the browser history on all of his computers, and scours his destroyed workshop. She doesn't find anything that really explains what happened, and it doesn't help her. It only makes her more angry. At him and at herself, at Jim, Venko, Obadiah, Natalie, whatever her name is, Colson, Fury, and that little Weasley rat bastard, Hammer. She stops answering the phone, leaves it to Jarvis to deal with, and watches over Tony with a kind of intensity and anxiety that scares her a little. At night, she crawls into his bed, and it only takes her two days to graduate from sleeping on the furthest edge from him 
to curling herself against his chest and memorizing every part of the new arc reactor. Pepper, he says into the dark on the fourth day, is this, like, a relationship now? I don't know. She mumbles, tracing the new triangular lines of the arc reactor with her fingers. She really doesn't. Happy came over today, tried to get her to let him in or her to go outside, and he sounded hurt at her one-word replies over the speaker system. She didn't betray any emotion other than tense irritation at being disrupted, and... When she spoke, she could practically hear Tony saying the words for her. It leaves her wondering how she can be so attuned to him, and yet have missed these warning signs again and again. But, Tony continues, sinking one hand into her hair. Could it be? She sighs. I don't know, Tony. Maybe... I can work with maybe, and it doesn't sound nearly as much of a joke as she thinks he meant it to sound. He wakes up the next afternoon while she's going through his walk-in closet. It's a mess, littered with shirts and pants and $5,000 Armani jackets that were worn once, then discarded. She thinks that maybe she'll collect some of this stuff up and donate it, but that's not why she's in there. She's in there, looking through the random boxes that she's known for years he has squirreled away. They're just bland shoe boxes, but for the fact that they're shoes from Prada and Testoni, and when she opens them, they're filled with what she can only describe as junk. Scraps of paper miniature wheels off old toys, batteries, and some broken pieces of plastic and metal. There are about a dozen similar boxes with the same sort of things inside, though she starts to discern a theme. Everything appears to be from his childhood, leftover things that most wouldn't keep, like shopping lists written in delicate cursive that include things like milk, eggs, animal crackers for Tony, in parentheses, and, in parentheses, important. The last box, right at the back on the highest shelf, is filled with photos. They range from faded pictures of people wearing hideous clothes from the 70s, right up to a few years ago. Tony and Jim, Tony and her, her and Jim. Some of them are torn down one side, some crumpled and then flattened out again, most with fingerprint marks around their corners. It's only when she gets to a photograph torn down the middle and taped back together, her and Tony with a phantom arm around each of their shoulders, that she gets it. He's ripped stain out of every picture, even the ones where stain was in the middle. She wonders when Tony did it, if. It was that day she made him cry. When she steps back out of the closet and closes the door, Tony's sitting on the bed with the covers bunched up around his waist, tapping at a tablet that he must have had hidden in the bedside table,
because she did her level best to remove anything that he could use to obsess over things. He doesn't notice her until she's made it over to the bed. He puts the tablet to one side and smiles up at her. Hey, he says. She climbs onto the bed and reaches out to press the back of her hand against his forehead. How are you feeling? Like a five-year-old with a poor tummy, he says, raising his eyes to look at her hand. If you bust out a thermometer, I'm just going to run it under hot water. His skin isn't clammy anymore, and it doesn't feel like he has a fever. But then, he's so cool to the touch anyway that she wonders if she'd even be able to tell. The dark smudges under his eyes are mostly gone, though, and his color has returned to its usual faint tan. She runs her hand into his hair as she sits down next to him. You need a bath, she says. Sponge bath? he asks, eyebrows climbing to his hairline, hopefully. I'll hold the shower head. He sighs deeply and slumps a little. I'm sick, you know, he says, and then blinks a couple of times, his expression growing serious. She tries not to react, but she can feel her lips thin anyway, and she knows that he notices it. She removes her hand from his hair. I saw online that SI's stock isn't doing so well he says, filling in the momentary silence. That always happens when there's an incident, she replies. Her assistant has been keeping her up to date as he can manage while dealing with her absence. She feels guilty because she knows exactly what it's like to be left in that position, but at the same time, she can't really get herself to a point where she really, truly cares. But those incidents were normally me being found in an alley with the prostitute and stuff, right? This is uncharted territory. You've never been caught in an alley with a prostitute, she says. Yeah, well, alley sex is gross. Ladies have higher standards. Even I know that. Such a gentleman. I can be gentlemanly as fuck when I want to be. He smiles softly. Pep, are you going back to work? She feels for his leg underneath the cover, starts running her hand up and down it idly. Where else would I go? She asks. Anywhere you want? Do you think I don't know how many job offers you get every week? I'm not stupid, despite my best efforts to make people think so. He covers her hand with his, stilling it on his leg. I'm not... She stops to think about what she's saying. She's avoided thinking of any of this for the last few days, preferring to fall on the old standard of must look after Tony. But the words feel true when she says them. I'm not going anywhere. The look of relief on his face almost takes her breath away. He squeezes her hand. That's... that's good to hear, but what about what you said? You said you quit. Do you... is that still happening? She shakes her head. I don't know, but I'll be around no matter what.
But Pepper, he takes her other hand and settles it onto his leg, too. The company's yours. Tony. No, I mean, I've never done anything to expand it. That was always... He shakes his head and looks at her with bright eyes. And you! You did everything for the company. If my name wasn't on the door, then I'd just be another creepy basement dweller building weapons. It's yours. It was your father's, Tony. You love the company. He chuckles. I really don't. I love what it can do for me. The money and resources and fame. I love Iron Man. But I don't love the company itself. I kind of hate it sometimes. You love it, though. You believe in all the good things that it can do for the world. Yeah, I read your resume. Don't look so surprised. It's not a shock that he feels this way, she supposes. The company essentially moved from the hands of his father into the hands of Stain and stayed there until six months ago. And she does believe in the company, though it's always been more about believing in him even when there was absolutely no reason to. Stark Industries is Tony. He defines it in every way for her. And anyway, he says, shaking her out of her thoughts, you can't be my PA anymore because you can't date your boss. That's totally cliche. Won't have it. She studies his face. His smile is just a touch desperate, begging for her to agree with him. If I stayed on as CEO, she says, and he grins, and if we were dating, wouldn't that make me your boss instead? Female boss, male employee is totally hot, though. Stuff of schoolboy fantasies, for sure. She sighs. Of course, how about I think about it? Will you think about the sponge bath, too? She leans up and kisses him on the forehead. No. By the end of the week, Tony's up and around, despite her best efforts to keep me in the boudoir pots, really, surveying the damage done to the house. I am going to have so much fun with this, he says, giving the particle accelerator a loving stroke. She sweeps a pile of debris off his workbench and into a trash bag. It's not staying here, she says. What? Why not? Because I don't want you to open up a black hole in the basement. It's not like we'd ever know, he mumbles. Time slows way down around a black hole. No. He sighs loudly and goes back to salvaging stray designs buried under rubble. Jarvis, Dummy, and the rest of the bots have done most of the heavy lifting, and Pepper's getting a contractor in for what's left of the repairs, despite Tony's insistence that he's perfectly well enough to do it himself. Passing out on the couch two hours after breakfast suggests otherwise. Ms. Potts, Jarvis says, you have a call. 
I told him you were not accepting calls presently, but he insisted quite vehemently. Thanks, Jarvis, she says. Could you route it through the workshop phone? Already done. She drops the trash bag and takes the phone from its cradle. Hello? Ms. Potts, you haven't been returning any of our calls, Coulson says in his usual monotone. Agent Coulson, she says, and Tony looks up from what he's doing. We've been a little busy around here. I understand. How is Mr. Stark? Better, she says, and doesn't elaborate. Tony watches her, but doesn't say anything. That's good to hear. Colonel Fury would like to speak with him. We're sending a car around to pick him up. No, she says. Tony raises his eyebrows. Give me the address and I'll drive him. That isn't necessary, Ms. Potts. Give me the address, she repeats. Or he isn't leaving this house. There's silence on the line and Tony mouths, What's going on? Before Coulson speaks again. Fine. Do you have a pen? She grabs a pen off one of the workbenches and shakes dust off a piece of paper. Go ahead. Tony peers over her shoulder as she takes the address down, then hangs up without saying goodbye to Coulson. She folds the paper and tucks it into her pocket. Fury wants to speak to you, she says. He nods. Just so you know, you're like... One-third Kathy Bates from Misery, two-thirds smoking hot right now. Put your shoes on, she says. It's not a long drive to the address Coulson gave her, an abandoned lot just outside Santa Monica. When she pulls up, there's a ripple of movement that she might have missed a couple of years ago, before she started to expect bad guys around every corner. The door of the lone building, a dilapidated old warehouse that she's pretty sure was Tony's hospital six days ago, opens and Coulson steps out. He stands by the door, hands clasped behind him, face as blank as ever. She stops the car and stares back at him, hands still resting on the wheel. Pepper? Tony says after they've sat there for a couple of minutes. He looks at her and frowns. I think if I don't get out of the car soon, they're going to shoot me. She grips the steering wheel tighter, still staring ahead. Coulson hasn't moved an inch. If you, she says and stops. She turns to him. If you ever keep something like this from me again, you won't have to worry about the paladinium killing you. He squirms under her gaze. I know, he says quietly. I won't, I promise. She loosens her grip on the wheel. Okay, she says. Okay? Okay. She repeats and puts her hand on the back of his neck, drawing him towards her. It's their first kiss since the roof, and it occurs to her that now she's going to have to get used to kissing someone with facial hair. 
He grins. So that's a definite maybe, then. Go talk to Fury. He grimaces. Ugh, total boner killer, man. He glances back at the building. If I'm not out in five minutes, call the police, or the Air Force, or Navy, Coast Guard, something. If you're not back in five minutes, I'm going to drive this car through the front of that building and drag you out. Stop being so hot, Pepper. God, I gotta have a little dignity when I go in there. Two days later, she stands behind the stage with fury as Tony and Jim receive their medals from Senator Stern. How on earth did he manage to get him to agree to this? She asks him, keeping her gaze forward, because she's not sure if she's actually allowed to look him square in the face, or if she might get shot for it. There's a general air about him that says, He might shoot me. You aren't the only one who knows how to threaten figures of authority, Ms. Potts, he says. Nicely done, by the way. She tips her head slightly. Life with Tony prepares you for almost anything, Colonel. He grins. I don't doubt it. Ten days later, S.H.I.E.L.D. calls again, only this time it comes in the form of an unexpected visit at seven on a Sunday morning. Pepper ignores the first couple of chimes of the bell, content to stay pinned underneath Tony, who has, sometime in the night, rolled mostly on top of her, a pleasingly solid pressure. She can feel his steady heartbeat against her chest, his steady breath against her ear, the reassuring hum of the arc reactor between them. Occasionally, he mumbles something, twitches and tenses, but for the most part, he's blessedly calm. They do not appear to be leaving, Jarvis says quietly. I did tell them that we are not accepting visitors at this hour. Damn, she mutters. Tony shifts, wrapping one of his legs around her. Shall I ready the cannons? She runs her fingers through Tony's hair, and he rubs his face into her neck. It does funny things to her toes. The scary thing is, I'm not sure if you're joking or not. I am programmed to follow two basic laws. First, do no harm. Second, get off my lawn, you damn kids. She sighs and starts to work at dislodging Tony. If anything, his weight seems to become even deader. No, he whines as she manages to roll him onto his back. Shield is here, she says, sitting up. Again. Tell them we moved, he suggests, pulling the covers over his head. Excellent plan, sir, Jarvis comments. They will never suspect a thing. Smartass, he mumbles. 
Need I remind you that the original basis for my program was a scan of your brainwaves, sir? Boys, Pepper says, and swings her legs out of the bed. I guess I'll deal with the secret agents at the door, shall I? Super Pepper to the rescue, she hears Tony call as she leaves the room. Indeed, Jarvis replies. S.H.I.E.L.D. wants Tony to go to New York. More accurately, they insist on it and have a plane on the tarmac at a private airfield for him. At first, at Coulson's, he needs to come with us. Jarvis locks the entire house down, trapping the still-dozing Tony in the bedroom. She sees the security panel flash red once to indicate that the house is armed, and she's sure Coulson sees it too. He seems completely unfazed by the turn of events. Pepper, on the other hand, feels a knot of dread in her gut. She viscerally objects to S.H.I.E.L.D.'s intrusion and wants nothing more than to direct Jarvis to eject Coulson from the house. But this isn't normal. This desire to protect Tony is starting to get out of hand. S.H.I.E.L.D. has never actually caused any harm to come to him, or, indeed, her and Jim. Coulson's even saved her life a couple of times. Fury and Natalie had saved Tony's life once, maybe twice. She knows her anger is misplaced. They go to New York. Coulson doesn't even blink at her coming along, and she busies herself on the plane with Tony's stock options while he flicks through a report given to him by Coulson on the incidents at Culver University and in downtown New York that have been all over the news in the past week. Tony's been following the speculation online with interest, Conspiracy theories abound about secret government projects and genetically engineered monsters, and apparently they aren't far off. The abomination, Tony mutters. This is awesome. What is it? She closes her laptop and peers over at the photograph in his hands. Monster is really the word that comes to mind. It's a person. Was a person? Name's blacked out, but he was a soldier. Got treated with some amped-up version of the super soldier serum and turned into roid rage boy here. Super soldier serum? Like Captain America? I thought that was just media propaganda. That's what they told us in History 101. Apparently not. <laughs> Rody's going to shit himself when he finds out, Tony says, and passes her a page of the document. Every name is redacted along with any identifying information. Subject blank, blank years old, from blank, presented with several serious ailments that prevented him from enlisting in the army. Once Dr. Blank administered the serum to the subject blank, Considerable physical changes were seen. She skips down to the last paragraph where it simply says, Subject blank's plane went down over the blank on May 1st, 1945. 
subject blank, was declared dead in 1952. Well, she says, handing the paper back, what about the other guy, the green one? The Hulk, Tony supplies. He hands her another page of the report. This one is almost entirely blanked out, save for the occasional is and the. He escaped. He escaped? She repeats. And doesn't that just make you feel so warm and safe inside? I'm not worried. I already have my machine man to protect me. At Tony's grin, she adds, I meant Jarvis. He leans over and kisses her on the cheek. Mean, Potts, you're very mean to me. Just toughening you up for General Ross. Thunderbolt doesn't like you, you know. No one likes me, he says. Even I don't like me. You really have terrible taste in men. She lays her hand over his and laces their fingers together. Just don't say the Air Force could beat up the Army again. You almost lost us a multi-million dollar contract last time. But it's true, he says innocently, rubbing his thumb across the back of her hand. Of course it's true. Jim could lay him out in a hot minute, but that doesn't mean you have to tell him that. I'm the only one you have to tell the truth to. His thumb stills. I do, he says, and glances sideways at her. The openness of his expression hits her hard for the split second that it's there before Coulson walks in and Tony's defenses slide shut again. We're landing in 20 minutes, Coulson says, then lingers, eyes flickering briefly to their entwined hands. I understand that you and General Ross already know each other. I've had my run-ins with the U.S. Army before, yeah, Tony says. I guess I should probably tell you that there's no love lost between me and Thunderbolt. I've heard, Coulson replies, and Pepper and Tony both look at the wall-mounted speakers, then at each other. She makes a mental note to get the house and all the cars swept for bugs once they get back. Just be yourself, Mr. Stark. She waits with Coulson for Tony in a car with one-way blacked-out windows. They're parked outside a bar in Harlem, having driven through what looked like a war zone, post the Hulk versus Abomination fight. How is Mr. Stark? Coulson asks, not even moving his head towards where she now sits in the passenger seat. His eyes are hidden behind his sunglasses, but she feels sure that he's monitoring and tracking the movements of every single person on the street. He's fine, she says, focusing on her laptop. S.H.I.E.L.D. has amazing wireless. Good. There's a pause that stretches long enough that Pepper thinks that Coulson has gone back to his meditation. Then he adds, How are you? I'm... Honestly, the question stumps her. How is she? She tells everyone else that she's just busy. Thank you for the concern. And Tony that she's happy. 
She's okay. He's okay. Fine, she settles on. Coulson nods once. Colonel Fury was pleased to hear that you and Mr. Stark had got together. He still doesn't look at her, though she turns in her seat and stares at him. Thanks? He is hopeful that Mr. Stark will be able to maintain a long-term, stable relationship. I would prefer not to talk about this. With you or with anyone else, she thinks. Of course, he says, and then he does turn his head, watching passively as Tony strides quickly from the bar. The locks of the car click open. We should go. Let's go. Can we go? Tony says as he opens the car door, having already started talking before they had a hope of hearing him. He jumps in and slams the door shut. This is bulletproof glass, right? If Pepper didn't know better, she'd swear that she catches the faintest curve of a smile on Coulson's mouth as he starts the car. As they begin to pull away, the door to the bar opens again and Ross steps out, holding an empty beer bottle raised to his chest. He looks momentarily undecided. Oh, she says when he hurls the bottle at the car and it smashes across the rear windshield. Tony looks positively ecstatic. Remind me to have that place demolished, he says. You need to own it first, she replies, already writing a note on her laptop to contact a property lawyer. Things go back to normal. Or, at least, the immediate crises are all financial rather than mortal. She still finds it hard to leave Tony alone, and outside of work, she spends her days in his mansion and her nights in his bed. When she goes to pick stuff up from her apartment, he tags along, citing that he's never been to her place before, and, Since I've shown you such hospitality over the years, I think I'm owed. Her mother calls because she hasn't heard from her in so long, and the text message Pepper sent after Tony was hospitalized, I'm fine, we'll call later, didn't exactly soothe her. Everything's fine, Mom. She says as she sits in the kitchen, going over Stark Industries' latest financial reports. Tony is, as he has been for the last three weeks, close by, trying to get a jar of something open and failing miserably. He starts banging it against the edge of the counter. She covers the phone with her hand and says, Stop that! You'll cut your hand open. Tony smiles sheepishly. He's been doing that more and more of late. It's quite an adjustment for her to get used to, and puts the jar down before leaving the room. Hmm, her mother hums. And how is Mr. Stark? She always pauses like that when they talk about Tony, like she has to brace herself before getting onto the subject of Pepper's warmongering man-whore former boss. He's fine. She says, writing a note for herself in red pen in the margin of the page she's looking at. Tony says she looks like a sexy high school teacher when she does her work. I saw the... 
fight on the news. It seems like he was beaten quite badly, her mother says. It must have taken him at least a little time to recover. Nothing a good night's rest didn't fix, she replies breezily. I see. You haven't been answering your home phone. Are you staying with him? Well, she starts as Tony comes back in with an Iron Man glove on and loudly announces, I am going to make this jar of pickles my bitch. I've had to stay over for a little. She watches without comment as Tony sets to work on the jar again, easily twisting the lid off as well as crushing it and smashing the top of the jar. He pauses, looking down at it, then shrugs to himself and reaches his other hand in. Tony! She snaps, interrupting her mother, saying something about whether it's really wise to spend so much time with him. She gets up, shoes him away, and gets a bowl and strainer from the cupboard before wedging her phone between her shoulder and her ear. How's Julia? She asks. Her sister is a constant source of irritation for their mother. It's always a good bet for a subject change. She puts the strainer on top of the bowl and carefully tips the shattered jar into it, then starts picking out the shards of glass while her mother details Julia's latest dead-end job. Can I... Tony says, taking the phone carefully from her. Hey, Miss Potts, you did an awesome job raising your daughter, but she has to go now. She'll call you later. He snaps the phone shut and she frowns at him. Don't... He cuts her off with a kiss, one hand on her shoulder, the gloved hand safely out of the way. He pulls back long enough to mumble, I love you, Pep, before covering her mouth again, and she lets him pull her in, presses her palms to his hips, then slides them up around his back. It's almost beginning to feel routine. Eventually, he comes up for air. You're the only girl who'd pick glass out of my pickles. Yours are the only pickles that I'd pick glass out of, period, she says, and he grins, leaning in for another kiss. There's a gala at the end of the month, a fact which comes to her attention eight hours before it starts, and three hours before her assistant tells her to turn on the news, and she discovers that Iron Man is in the middle of battling someone who appears to be dressed up as a giant bug. Jim sends her a text message saying that he's flying in to help, and between them, they take the unfortunate guy down while she's on a conference call, one eye on the muted television. In the late afternoon, Tony sends her a text that reads, Help me, Pepper. Upset face. Along with an address in southwest L.A., which she breaks the speed limit somewhat to get to. As it turns out, S.H.I.E.L.D. won't let him leave their new facility before he's been debriefed, and they're taking their sweet time about it. She almost hits him for worrying her like that, but he looks so exhausted that even a tap on the chest might lay him out. You can talk to him tomorrow, she says over Coulson's objections. And I want my suit back, 
Tony adds, gripping her arm a little harder than necessary. I could sue you for copyright infringement for even having a disassembly unit, you know. Get him his suit, she says, and miraculously, they comply. Tony falls asleep minutes after she peels back out of the parking lot, twisted towards her in the passenger seat. He has dark circles under his eyes, contrasting sharply with his pale face, and she indulges the urge to check his pulse. It's steady enough, and he squirms under her touch, pushing his face into her hand. She rubs her thumb against his cheek, feeling the resistance of his stubble. He hasn't shaved for a couple of days, hasn't really been out at all. She withdraws her hand to an irritated sound of protest from Tony and calls through to the mansion. Jarvis? Yes, Miss Potts? Is Tony okay? Jarvis pauses for a moment before answering. I cannot presently scan him, but he was not injured in the fight. Okay, she mutters, casting another look at him. He doesn't look uninjured. However, he was complaining of a headache earlier, and his blood panel this morning showed low blood sugar. His blood panel? Mr. Stark has had me test his blood every other day for the last three weeks. Oh, she says. He did not want you to have to worry about him anymore. She takes a deep breath, trying to dispel the sudden tight feeling in her chest. Thank you, Jarvis. You are welcome, Miss Potts. It takes two hours to get back to the mansion with traffic, and Tony sleeps the entire way, barely stirring when Pepper's phone starts to ring, her assistant worrying about where Pepper is. By the time she pulls up at home, she has an hour to get to the gala. She shakes him awake, and he jumps, banging his head against the door. Fuck! Who put that there? Jesus. Come on, let's get you into bed. He grins stupidly at her, then frowns. No. No. Mm, no, he says vaguely, fumbling with the door handle. There's a thing. She reaches across him and releases it for him. A thing? He says and stumbles out of the car. There is... He shakes his finger for a second before pointing at her. Agala, yes! How on earth do you know about that? She asks, getting out of the car and following him out of the garage. Got Jarvis to set up an alert system for things. Jarvis, code red coffee, chop chop. I am not certain that we have enough coffee beans on the premises, sir, Jarvis replies. Tony pulls a face at one of the sensors and jabs at the elevator buttons. He holds the door open until Pepper catches up with him. Since when do you have an alert system? She's suggested such a thing several times over the years, and he'd always shot it down as too suffocating to his creativity. Three weeks ago, give or take. 
Oh, she says and looks at him. He looks absolutely wrecked. Well, don't worry about it. I'm not worried. It takes what? 40 minutes to get to Beverly Hills? I've got a whole 20 minutes to make myself lovely. He strides out of the elevator when the doors open and heads for the kitchen, picking up Jarvis's waiting cup of coffee when he gets there. He takes a sip and gags. Ah, that's the stuff. We're not going. Of course we're going. It's called a Stark Industries gala for a reason, you know. Tony... Pepper! He dodges past her as she tries to block him on his way out of the kitchen. It'll look bad to the investors if we aren't there, especially with the expo going the way it did. She resists, reminding him that he's never cared about that sort of thing before, and swings around to pursue him up the stairs. Fine, I'll go then, but you need to stay here and rest. Nonsense, he says. I have coffee now, I'm good, and you know every CEO needs a little arm candy. You got regulated to that position enough times while I fucked around with anyone and everyone. I think it's high time you got some revenge. He makes it to the bedroom, turning around to smile too brightly at her. I'm not going to get revenge on you, Tony. He shrugs, smile frozen on his face. You'd be well within your rights to, is all I'm saying. She has never been on this side of the argument. The look on Tony's face is vaguely desperate. It's a look that she's been seeing far too often lately. She shakes her head. You've got 15 minutes, she says. Happy looks concerned when they meet him out by the limo. You sure you're up to it, boss? He asks, eyeing Tony's wet hair and iron grip on a new cup of coffee that smells strong enough to resurrect the dead. Nevertheless, he opens the door for them. Course I am, Tony says, just barely avoiding hitting his head on the edge of the open door. She has to put concealer under his eyes to make him look halfway well, and thankfully there's an outlet for the hairdryer that she snagged on the way out of the house. By the time they pull up outside of the hotel, ten fashionable minutes late, he looks just about presentable enough. We good? he asks. She can already hear photographers and journalists clamoring outside of the limo. We can still go home, you know, she says, and then at his huff, kisses him quickly on the lips and nods. We're as good as we'll ever be. Don't touch your face. Strong words, Potts, strong words, he says and slips his sunglasses on before getting out. They barely leave each other's sides for most of the evening which does afford them some strange glances, and, with Tony's occasionally spaced-out expression, she can already hear whisperings about him being stoned and her covering up coming from the edges of the room. She shuts it out as best she can, 
years pass, they'd probably be right, and she'd probably be worried about blind items on gossip websites. Now she wants to tell them not to injure this delicate thing, this goodness in him that's fighting to see the light of day that could easily disappear if challenged too harshly. The vehemence of this feeling takes her quite by surprise. They spend the first couple hours fielding questions about flushing. Most of the site has been cleared with the help of S.H.I.E.L.D. for leftover drones. They were clamoring to get at them, and if it meant less for S.I.'s cleanup crew to do, then so be it. And compensation for the surrounding residents is underway. Though she tells Tony otherwise, the attack on the Expo, and the Expo in general, may have delivered a crippling blow to the company, one that she hardly feels capable of dealing with. Around 10, she gets cornered by an investor with thinning, graying hair and the most monotonous voice she has ever heard. He's talking about the deal he's making with the company, and try as she might, she cannot remember who he or his company is. But she's merely a vessel at which he can speak, and the only reason she's still allowing herself to be talked at is because he makes a little aside about also being interested in Hammer Industries. Tony's a few feet away, swaying slightly by the bar, talking to a woman that Pepper quickly identifies as Christine Earnhardt. Earnhardt appears to have a tape recorder in her hand. Damn. Pepper touches the investor's arm lightly. Why don't you come into the office tomorrow, and we can discuss this further, if you'll excuse me. She says and breaks away without another word, walking as quickly as she can towards Tony without drawing undue attention. She finds that everyone watches her these days, though, and no matter how hard she tries to avoid it. When she reaches them, she holds her hand out to him, and he takes it without missing a beat. I'm sorry, Miss Earnhardt, but I insist on having this dance. Of course, Earnhardt says gracefully. We were just shooting the shit. Pepper doesn't miss her carefully pocketing the recorder. Yes, well, Tony is full of that, Pepper replies and tugs him away. Half of the concealer she applied not three hours ago has been rubbed away, leaving his face unevenly pale and sallow. She pulls him onto the dance floor and arranges his hands on her waist. Have you been rubbing your face? No, he says, then squints. Yes. You look like death. One dance and we're going home. She wraps her arms loosely around his neck and tries her best to lead without making it obvious she is. His, okay, comes out in a rush of air as he presses, almost slumps against her. She counts off in her head, shuffling her feet and trying to get him to follow without tripping. When she gets to fifty, she pulls away and wraps an arm around his waist, leading him out of the room. People are going to talk, you know, he mumbles as she attempts to carefully weave around the guests without engaging them in conversation. You manhandling me like this. I manhandle you all the time, she says and steers him out into the hallway, 
towards the exit where the drivers are waiting. No, right, but I'm not normally so, uh, sober when you do. She elbows the car open and waves to Happy, who starts when he sees them and drops his magazine. There is not a single person in there save you and me who thought you were sober tonight. I didn't even touch a glass! At this point, your liver probably produces alcohol all by itself, she says. He laughs and nuzzles his face into her hair. Happy looks away as he opens the door for them. I wasn't expecting you for, well, till light, boss, he says. Tony tumbles gracelessly into the back seat. Pep couldn't wait any longer to ravish me, he calls. She closes her eyes for a second, then straightens up and curls her fingers around the edge of the car door. Thank you, Happy, she says. Yeah, he says, not meeting her gaze. She slips into the back and slams the door closed, then leans across and starts fiddling with Tony's seatbelt. I can do that myself, Tony grumbles. She slides a knee into his lap to reach the buckle. On second thought, go right ahead. When she settles back into her seat and Happy pulls out of the garage, Tony starts talking, semi-coherent rambling that makes her cringe at the thought of whatever heart has got on her tape recorder, and exactly how the woman might spin such delirious drivel. She lets Tony continue for a few minutes as they clear the journalist and paparazzi and are back on the road before she lays a hand on his knee. Just, she says, and he looks at her with that bizarrely guileless way he has about him sometimes. It's okay. Stop. Right, he says, and all the tension seems to leave his body at once. Okay. He leans his head back and closes his eyes. Of course, just to continue the night's trend of being extremely difficult, when they get home, Tony won't wake up. The most she can get out of him is a huff and being lightly flailed at. Don't worry about it, Happy says, pushing his sleeves up. Not the first time I've had to put Mr. Stark to bed. I recall, she says, and gets out of the way so Happy can reach in, loop his arms around Tony's waist, and drag him out of the limo. He's lighter than I remember, Happy comments, arranging Tony over his shoulder. She shrugs and closes the door behind them. Tony's put back on a lot of weight and muscle mass in the last month, and he's been working out every day, but the only people who even know that this is an issue are her, Rhodey, and, she supposes, everyone at S.H.I.E.L.D. Tony's mostly been hiding it by clever use of oversized hoodies and not going out. Following Happy inside, first in the elevator from the garage, then up the stairs, is, to say the least, awkward made even more so when they get to the bedroom. It only occurs to her, when they get to the door, that she hadn't made the bed that morning. 
that her work clothes and sensible bra are discarded on top of the rumpled sheets, that all her little touches are present amongst his things, her battered makeup case, her stack of paperback novels, her teddy bear that Tony only laughed at for a few minutes. They're all things that Happy's going to recognize. She cringes inwardly. He puts Tony down on the bed carefully, judiciously avoiding looking at her clothes. Tony immediately rolls onto his stomach, burying his face in the covers. So, Happy says and shuffles his feet a little. I didn't expect to be off until at least four. Is he okay? He's fine, she says shortly, and doesn't miss Happy's hurt look. She used to tell him things, used to open up to him, but that was a long time ago, and she knows she's lost that connection now. Ironically enough, one of the things that she's learned from long years with Tony is how to prioritize, what she can go without, and what she simply can't. I think there's a bug going around. She doesn't even bother to make it sound believable. Sure, Happy replies. I'll just be... He points to the door. She steps out of his way, already thinking about how much she's going to be able to strip Tony. He can be difficult enough to undress when he's conscious. Happy stops at the door. I'm glad that Tony's making an effort for you now. He flashes her a quick smile. Night, Pepper. She nods. So am I, she mutters once he's out of hearing range. The article that appears in Vanity Fair at the end of the week, byline Christine Everhart, alludes to the questionable fitness and value of Tony in his dual positions as superhero and figurehead of Stark Industries. Everhart suggests that he is neither physically nor mentally capable of filling either role, and that, indeed, he's only barely filling one of those as of right now. She doesn't go in for any of the easy jabs about substance abuse either, preferring instead to drag up the old questions of PTSD and Tony's stability post-Afghanistan and Vanco. Haters, Tony says with a shrug over breakfast. She thinks you're trying to withdraw from public life entirely. Everhart presents a pretty convincing argument, giving up the company going off the deep end at his birthday party, trailing around after Pepper at the gala, never being seen at nightclubs or parties. Is it all too much for Tony Stark? Everhart asks. Opinions are like assholes, he says around a spoonful of cereal. Everyone is one. Has one, she corrects. One what? Tony. She closes the magazine and slides it over to him. He slides it back. You'll tell me if there's something important, he says with absolute certainty. Yeah, but 
aren't you interested? You'll tell me if there's something I need to know, he repeats, fixing wide eyes on her before tipping his bowl back and draining it. Most of the milk gets in his beard. She sighs and reaches for the paper towels. What they need, she decides, is to go on a date. A real out-of-the-house, get-dressed-up, kiss-on-the-doorstep-at-the-end-of-the-night date. In two short months, they've fallen into a routine, which is she gets up ridiculously early, gets dressed, gets coffee, and leaves for work while Tony follows her around until she's out the door then holes up in the workshop. When she gets back after dark, he's wearing exactly what she left him in, a t-shirt and sweatpants with maybe some added oil stains and sweat. Then she heats something up in the microwave, they watch TV for a little while, make out for a little while longer, go to bed, and rinse and repeat the next day. And... The thing that's starting to scare her is that Tony seems perfectly content this way. Like, he has no real desire to go out, or talk to people, or do anything that doesn't take place inside their little bubble. A date? Tony repeats suspiciously. He's barefoot, one leg tucked under him on the chair as he works on some incredibly intricate and fiddly circuit board for the suit. She's always amazed at how delicate he can be, feather-like touches and the shallow, controlled breathing. You've heard of them, haven't you? She leans her hip against the edge of the workshop. He follows the line to her face. Heard of them? Yeah he says, and glances back down at the circuit board. You've been on a date, she says, not making it a question. He hums noncommittally. Rumiko? Joanna? You were engaged to her. Four or five minutes, he says. I'm more of a wham-bam-thank-you-ma'am kind of guy. You know that, Pep. High school, she says. I graduated when I was 15. Either they weren't interested in a precocious little freak, or my mom wouldn't let me go out with 18-year-old cheerleaders with huge college, she says. University, she tries again, cutting him off. Don't even pretend you didn't spread it around back at MIT. Rhodey was there. He snorts. The only person I ever really wanted to date or whatever kind of fucked me over, and not in the fun way. He smiles up at her, but she catches the split-second wobble in his expression. She can't remember the last time she saw him wear shoes. She thinks it might have been the gala. They have got to get out of here. Well, it's your lucky day, because I am going to take you out on a long overdue first date. Should I wear a corsage? That's prom, she says. Oh. She rubs a hand over the back of his neck. Tomorrow. Dress pretty for me.
Are you ready? She calls from outside the bedroom door because apparently Tony has taken this date to heart and is therefore refusing to let her in until he's ready. It's bad luck, he said through the door. We aren't getting married, Tony. There's a beat and a quiet, yeah, I know that. Uh, he says, and there's a thump and a muttered, where the fuck are they? Under the bed, sir, she hears Jarvis say. Tony, she says after another minute. Yep, yeah, yeah, yes, here I am, he says, and flings the door open. She looks him over. Hair's a bit wild. She makes a note to book him a hair appointment. No tie, open collar, dark wash jeans that are new and she knows are going to rub blue dye on everything, and sneakers that... She tilts her head, and he lifts up his foot a bit to give her a closer look. Like them? Came in the mail yesterday. Are those... Iron Man Nikes? He grins. The arc reactors light up and everything. They don't go with your jeans. Are you saying I'm not pretty enough? You're plenty pretty, she says, and he leans in close to kiss her. Can we just stay in? He asks against her ear. I'm sure we could find lots of fun things to do with those fuck-me boots you're wearing. Her breath stutters in her throat as he runs his lips along her jaw, nose brushing her cheek. These aren't fuck-me boots. Totally fuck-me boots, he rumbles against her neck. You'd say that about my bunny slippers. She feels his laughter warm her skin before he slides an arm under her legs and lifts her against him, turning her round and pressing her gently into the wall. Bunnies are totally an aphrodisiac. She wraps her legs around him, the tips of her boots, which perhaps she chose for their less wholesome qualities, knocking together and uses her shoulders to anchor herself between him and the wall, as he sets to work unbuttoning her shirt with his teeth and tongue. It's really quite impressive. T Tony, oh, she gasps as he gets the top four buttons undone and starts the same treatment on her collarbone, sucking along the sharp edge just the barest hint of teeth. She winds a hand in his hair, unsure for a second of what she wants to do. Whatever it is, it only serves to make Tony groan and redouble his efforts. Tony! Tony! He stills, and she can feel his chest heaving against hers. Tony, she repeats again. Making out comes after the date. I'm a grown-up. I can have dessert before starters, too, you know, he mumbles. Yes, she agrees, intimately aware of Tony's diet, more aware of it than he is, probably. 
And yet, he huffs and after a couple of seconds lets her back down with a heavy sigh. You might want to change into a t-shirt, she says, tapping his cheek. Your shirt's going to get dirty where we're going. That gets his attention. The problem with going out with Tony is that you aren't just going out with Tony. You're going out with Tony, dozens of Hollywood paparazzos, hundreds of swooning fans, and a bodyguard or ten. There are very few places he can go where he won't immediately cause iPhones to come out of bags and start snapping away, and Pepper would prefer that their first date not hit Twitter before they get to dessert. Tony looks out of the window suspiciously when they finally reach their destination. After a couple of hours driving and many off-key renditions by him of the greatest hits of Black Sabbath, he does it for her benefit because she's heard him sing and he's actually really good, a little too good, and she vastly prefers spending the two hours laughing to being hopelessly aroused. It's a park, he says. She pulls onto the side of the dirt track and hits the brakes. Good eye. He glances around. They're the only ones there, which is exactly what she was hoping for. I feel like we're here to bury a body, he says. Don't be silly. The ground here is far too hard to dig a grave. Not that I've ever thought about this in long, long shareholders meetings. He looks at her out of the corner of his eye and slowly reaches for the door handle. Rody knows I'm here, you know. No, he doesn't. Nobody does. That's the point. She manages to keep her face straight until the corner of Tony's mouth starts to twitch. She leans over and gives him a peck on the cheek. Come on. What are we doing? He asks, following her out of the car. Like hand gliding? Dirt bike racing? Rock climbing? She pops the trunk and reaches in, Tony pressing against her, peering over her shoulder. She pulls out a basket and a blanket. Picnic, she says. Picnic? He repeats, backing up just enough to let her close the trunk. She turns around and pushes the basket into his hands. Think of it as extreme picnicking, if you want. What's extreme about it? You'll just have to find out, won't you? She contemplates the tall grass, then her three-inch heel boots. She probably should have planned this better, but she only decided on where they were going this morning, and she was already dressed by then. She kneels down to unlace the boots and then pulls them and her socks off. The grass is wet and cool under her bare feet, and it's such a relief that she takes a minute to absorb it. When she opens her eyes, Tony is standing next to her, 
holding the basket to his chest, staring at her feet. Tony, she says. Hmm, he hums, distracted. Come on. She settles on somewhere with the view of the ocean. Tony comments that they can see it just as well from his bed. But this way, you're actually experiencing nature, not just what Jarvis filters in. Tony arches an eyebrow. Are you saying that you want to commune with nature? Should I take my pants off? Maybe later. She gives the hem of his jeans a tug. Sit down. He flops down next to her. So, what does one do at a picnic? He leans over and flicks a bug off her leg. Except get eaten alive by bugs, obviously, because that's always fun. You've never been on a picnic? He shakes his head. Camping? My dad took me to Colorado and tried to teach me how to fish once. We stayed in his state-of-the-art RV, probably the only time it ever got used. She tuts and hopes the dog sniffing around by the bushes doesn't come over and bring his owner with him. That doesn't count. Well, there was that one time I roughed it for about three months, he says, then winces. Uh, sorry. It's fine, she says, because it looks like he's worried that she might slap him. So, did you learn how to fish? He shakes his head. No, uh, we, uh, we both sucked at it. A couple of days later, something urgent came up and he dropped me back off with my mom at the Hamptons. That's where we went in the summer, he clarifies. Just me and her. Pepper knows almost nothing about his mother beyond the Maria Stark Foundation, and that's only because she's on the board of it. In fact, Pepper knows very little about Tony's childhood that wasn't gleaned from speeches he's given, which could hardly be relied on, comments made by Obadiah, which she's continually realizing said more about him than they ever did about Tony, and Tony's own drunken ramblings. Pepper knows Tony's shoe size, chest size, and height, 5'8", but he says he's 5'9". She knows that he prefers McDonald's to Burger King and Taco Bell over both for nostalgia reasons. She knows that he'll start itching if he eats too many peanuts, but that it won't stop him, so she has to invest in boxes of antihistamine pills every month. She knows that he hasn't been to a dentist in eight years, and he's only been to the doctor twice in the last ten, both because of Iron Man-related injuries. She knows where his porn is stashed and how much of it focuses on red-headed dominatrices. But she doesn't know about his mother. Tell me about her, she says. He shrugs. Nothing much to tell. She was your mother, she says. Of course there is. He shrugs again. I don't know. 
She wasn't expecting to ever be a mom. I was the least planned baby ever. But she did okay. She worked with a lot of charities, and she used to take me along when I was little. She made me eat my vegetables, taught me how to swim. Just normal stuff, I guess. How did she meet your father? Tony shifts uncomfortably. She was his secretary. He was engaged to someone else at the time. Huh, she says. I thought Howard was a consummate bachelor until he married your mom. Yeah, it got covered up. The media loved the whole boss-secretary romance. It was like a fairy tale. Poor Italian girl tames the heart of millionaire bachelor. The other woman was totally forgotten. He shrugs, not quite meeting her eyes. She thinks about Joanna and how she'd never even heard of her until she came across her in Tony's kitchen that day. You know it's a myth that people grow up to be their parents, right? Otherwise, I'd be a shrill, bossy, red-headed, well... She smiles and Tony laughs, but when he says, You're perfect, it sounds totally sincere. And you're not your father. No, he wasn't battery-operated. He wasn't a superhero. Just a national hero. But not a superhero, she repeats. Fine, he finally agrees. My father was not a superhero. And, with respect, I'm not your mother. She says more for her benefit than his. She is not his mother. She does not need to parent him. Ew, he says, wrinkling his nose. Bad, bad images there, Pep. She smacks him lightly on the arm. So, stop drawing parallels where there are none and eat your sandwich. He leans over and peers into the basket. Can I have pudding first? What kind did you bring? Hey, cupcakes! They've been sharing a bed every night for a month. It seems like a lot longer, but then, in a way, she supposes they've been in this relationship for ten years, which makes it even stranger that he hasn't tried anything yet. Sure, he flirts and touches and kisses, and he clings like a limpet when he's asleep, but he never pushes it any further than that. The situation is starting to get a little... Frustrating, honestly. They get home just as it's beginning to get dark, and if he notices how distracted she was on the drive back, he doesn't mention it. I think I like this whole date thing, he says as she pulls her boots off. You can take your pants off now, she says. He chuckles. No, really. She huffs and grabs him by the belt buckle. Upstairs, she says, hauling him along. He lets her pull him all the way upstairs, 
stumbling occasionally before he drops his hands to her shoulders. Are you okay, Pep? Yes, she hisses as she works her fingers underneath his belt buckle and starts to pry it loose. She's got two fingers hooked around the elastic of his boxers before it occurs to her to ask, Are you... don't you... want to? Christ, he growls, somehow shedding his shoes and pants in one smooth movement before hurrying her into the bedroom. I want, I want. Good, she breathes. She unceremoniously strips him of his t-shirt, barely giving him time to even raise his arms first, then curls an arm around his waist, spins them round, and shoves him down onto the bed. Then practicing that, I see, he says, but is swiftly quieted when she climbs on after him, knees planted on either side of his hips. He makes a sound low in his throat when she ducks down and kisses him with too much teeth like a frantic teenager. He shifts under her, groans, skims his hands all over her body, the back of her legs, her ass, the curve of her back, before he gets hold of the bottom of her shirt and gives it an experimental tug. A bottom button pops off. Fuck, sorry. He mutters, ducking his head to squint at it. Way smoother earlier on. She sighs and sits back to pull it over her head and discard it. A couple more buttons rain down on them. Damn, he says quietly. She expects more of a smart-ass comment, but he leaves it there, sliding his hands over her waist callous thumbs kneading the skin above her hip bones. It's different to what she's used to. His hands aren't that big. His fingertips are rough in places but smooth in others from repeated burns and scaldings of his work. His fingernails are short and ragged where he gnaws on them when he's bored or distracted. His palms are noticeably cooler than her skin. He's been running cold since he came back from Afghanistan, and, honestly, that terrifies her. The evidence of Afghanistan is wrought on his body just as much as it is on his head. In the raised skin around the reactor, the faint, spidery lines radiating out from it, the white scars dotted over his chest— she doesn't really understand how a body could take that much pain and keep going. The reactor flares brighter as he surges up and kisses her. Can your heart take this? She asks. She hadn't considered it before, but the way the reactor is glowing, it worries her. Just don't go breaking it, he says. She stares down at the reactor. Now you're supposed to stay. I couldn't if I... Try, try... He stutters to a stop when she lowers her mouth to the curved edge and runs her tongue along where it meets his chest. Or, or you could do that, he says and gasps, 
rolling his head back against the mattress. Fuck, I did, did not think about new erogenous zones. Oh god, Pepper! She abandons her work to look at him again. She can feel his erection grinding into her thigh. His eyes are impossibly dark. His mouth is half open. It's just as pornographic as sex with Tony Stark should be. But his reactions seem, somehow, disproportionate to the situation. She's had the dubious pleasure of witnessing him having sex with a lot of people, on video feeds on the internet, and a few memorable times in person. It normally takes a bit more than this to get him going. She unzips her jeans and pushes them down. He immediately rolls his hips up, seeking lost pressure, and makes a strangled noise of relief when she pushes back down to meet him. Tony, she says. He's arched up against her, and she can't help but run her hand along his spine. He moans, hands scrambling in the blank. He moans, hands scrambling to grip the blanket beneath them. Tony, she repeats. When was the last time you had sex? <sighs> he says. She leans down and kisses his jaw. When was the last time? I don't, don't. He pants, trying to reposition himself, but he... He pants, trying to reposition himself, but she has him soundly pinned down. You know, she says, fighting to keep her voice level. She's not sure why she's pushing it, with him writhing underneath her, and an increasingly hard-to-ignore pressure between her legs. But she is, and she needs to know. He balls the blanket up in his fist and lifts his head. Everhart, he says, eyes widening. Almost a year ago? she asks. She supposes she knows that, but she thought he must have sneaked off at some point and found someone. Came, came close, if you will, since then, he says, punctuating it with a groan. But no, no cigar. Wow, she says. She rocks her hips forward and he collapses back against the bed again. And he collapses back against the bed. Not like I haven't jerked off and shit. Oh, God, he gasps as she continues to rock into him. You're enjoying this. She cocks her head. Maybe she is. Who do you think about? You, he gasps. He's flushed pink all the way down to his chest. She likes it. He's been so pale recently. For years. Who else? Pepper. He's spread his legs wider, pushing one up, searching for some kind of relief. She's never had this kind of control over someone in bed. It's kind of thrilling. Tony, 
she whispers. Tell me. He grabs her hips and stills her. His brow is furrowed when he says, Everhart occasionally. Hate sex is hot. Natasha, her, her hair, used to, used to think about Rhodey a lot when I was younger. He never let me, me do anything because I was too young. And that just made it better in my head. Sunset, way too much. Jarvis, once or twice, but that got a little weird, even for me. But you, all the time. Your fucking red shoes. Fuck. Her red shoes? From the day I was hired? Yeah, he says roughly. Fourteen years ago? Yeah, he says and looks away. Oh, Tony. She reaches between them and tugs her underwear down, then his. That's by far the hottest thing anyone's ever said to me. She sinks down onto him without further warning, and he sobs with relief this time, and so does she, almost. She's pressed against him, kissing his mouth, cheek, neck, which he stretches out invitingly as he rocks against her. She runs her teeth along his pulse point, swirling her tongue there for a moment. He tangles his fingers in her hair. He tangles his fingers in her hair. Harder. What? The neck thing. Teeth. Harder. It'll leave a mark, she says. The hand in her hair tightens. Fuck, he hisses. Yes! She starts again, redoubles her efforts, and he just moans as she sucks round marks into his neck, making sounds that are bringing her perilously close to the edge. It's been years since she's given someone a hickey, and they never enjoyed it this much. Pepper, he says. Pepper, 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 oh God, I love you so much. I love you. I love you so much. He arches up against her, his other arm coming up to cling tightly to her back as he gasps and gasps until his breath finally stutters and he mumbles her name one last time, pulling her over the edge with him. She rests her forehead against his chest as he... She rests her forehead against his chest as his hand in her hair loosens and falls away. His arm relaxes. She stays like that for a few minutes before sitting up and smiles when he tries to pull her back in. You want some postcoital cuddling? She teases, raising an eyebrow. He shifts, blinking rapidly as he looks up at her. Yeah, he says. Oh, there's no hint of his usual hard exterior. Just Tony, half asleep, still lying between her thighs. I'm just going to clean up, she assures him. I'll be back in a minute. Okay, he mumbles and looks at her like, 
Like he trusts her. It's such a small thing, and there's no reason why he shouldn't trust that she's going to come back from the bathroom, but it knocks her for six anyway. She hurries as much as she can in the bathroom, uses the toilet, works the worst of the knots out of her hair, takes her makeup off, brushes her teeth. When she gets back to the bedroom, the only movement Tony has made is to roll over onto his side, the red marks on his neck visible in the half-light. He's still in the place where she pushed him down, diagonally across the bed, feet jutting over the edge. She pulls the blanket free from where it's tucked under the mattress and pulls it over them as she climbs and settles with her back against his chest. The reactor, a warm, solid pressure between her shoulder blades, he sighs into her hair and wraps his arms around her waist. Don't go out until those have faded, she says, waving her slice of toast at the bruises on his neck the next morning. We don't want your sexcapades in the news again. Sexcapades? Tony repeats with a laugh. Sure, I'll just... Put her around the house. You do that, she says and swallows the last of her toast. I'll go out and earn more money for you to spend. He keeps up his promise for three days before her Tony Google alert spits out such masterpieces as What has Tony Stark been up to while he's away? Has Iron Man found his Iron Maiden? and the brilliantly succinct, absentee billionaire sexed up, which comes with a picture of him in low-riding jeans, a sweatshirt with a ridiculously stretched-out neck, and his hair messy and beginning to curl. He still needs that haircut. On a scale of things he shouldn't wear while sporting three perfectly round bruises on his neck, the ensemble ranks pretty high. She drops her tablet in front of him on the coffee table, covering up the open book he has there. Oops, he says. And what exactly were you doing at Whole Foods? He squints. Buying food? We have a delivery due tomorrow. If you wanted something else, I could have picked it up on my way home. Now PR is being bombarded with phone calls about your new girlfriend. I wanted to buy stuff that I didn't want you to know I was buying, he sighs. You've ruined the surprise now. Oh, Tony, is that why the kitchen door is closed? Jarvis has got it covered. His creation isn't as bad as she feared it might be. It's not that he can't cook so much as it is he can't or won't concentrate long enough on a simple task to complete it successfully. That's why he can build the Iron Man suit in a cave, but he can't do his laundry. That or he's just lazy. 
The filet of chicken marinated in something that tastes suspiciously like he made it out of various ingredients he found in the kitchen is actually pretty good, as is the bottle of wine he brought up from the cellar to go along with it. So what brought this on? So what brought this on? She asks once Tony has flicked through every channel they have and settled on Cake Boss. This is totally mechanical engineering, he says. And anyway, I'm half Italian. It reminds me of my mom's family. Pepper's considering canceling their subscription to TLC. I can't do something nice once in a while? Jeez, what's the world coming to? For you, doing something nice usually involves installing quantum chips in my laptop. The last time you made me food, she says, but the rest of it gets stuck in her throat. Tony smiles wanly and refills her glass. Yeah, it's not that. You just, you know, work really hard. You always have, and I just want you to know that I know that, and that I'm really happy with this, with you. He downs half his glass in one go and refocuses on the TV. I bet I could make a life-size Iron Man cake. They get through most of the bottle in under an hour by which time she's leaning against Tony's chest while he absently braids her hair, twisting the strands together, then combing them free and starting over again. She's lost her stockings and skirt and changed into a pair of leggings that one of Tony's robots kindly fetched for her. There's a mostly empty tub of cookie dough ice cream on the cushion next to them, Two spoons stuck in it, tilting at a worrying angle. So, how's the company? I hope I'm still really rich, because the new upgrades to the suit are going to be bitchin'. She shifts, scooting down until she can feel the hard edge of the reactor against the back of her head. She rests her bare feet on the coffee table and reaches over to dig her spoon in the melting ice cream. We've got some new investors, and S.H.I.E.L.D. has been giving us money for all sorts of confidential projects, but our stocks are all over the place. Every time there's a new picture or article about you, the NYSE goes nuts. Finance are having an ongoing mass heart attack. For some reason, the thought makes her laugh, a rather unbecoming giggle. She lifts the tub over her head and offers it to Tony. As long as I can still make my toys, he says and takes it. He rests it on top of her head for a moment before she squirms away from it. You know, if it would help our stocks, we could just say you're my girlfriend instead of everyone thinking I'm some kind of Howard Hughes man-whore asshole. It wouldn't stop them from thinking that, she says. Anyway, I already get enough shit from going from PA to CEO. Being your girlfriend would not help. Tony goes very still. She frowns and thinks over what she said. Oh, 
She normally has much more tact than this. Tony, she begins, and twists around to look at him. He smiles softly at her and ducks his head to kiss her on the cheek. Whatever's best, Pep, I live to serve. She's in a meeting with investors from Germany when the floor begins to shake. Her assistant gives her a wide-eyed look from the door. Ein Moment, Pepper says, holding up her hand. She gets up and walks as calmly to the window as she can. Behind her, she can hear the men saying, Erbiben? to each other. Earthquake? She catches the metallic arm of a... something rounding the building across the street. Definitely not an earthquake. Entschuldigung, she says, then points at her assistant. Jonathan, come with me. Emergency protocol 10, she says when she's happy they're out of hearing range of the investors. Nobody in or out of the building. Shields up, windows darkened. Do not tell our guest anything. Um, Jonathan says. The ground shudders under their feet again. Now, she says as she turns away from him, headed to her office. She pulls her phone out of her pocket, and it rings before she even manages to thumb it unlocked. Pepper, Tony says when she answers. It sounds like he's been running. Pepper, I'm on my way. Okay, she says. She closes the office door, switching the lights on as the windows begin to turn dark brown. There's a safe in the corner, hidden behind lacquered wood. On the line, Tony is still breathing heavily, alternatingly yelling at Jarvis and swearing under his breath. She presses the phone between her ear and shoulder and keys in the combination. I'm gonna, gonna, God damn it, dummy, get your head in the game. Come get you, okay? She reaches into the safe and pulls out a gun. I think you mean you're going to come fight the giant robot thing that's going on the rampage outside, she corrects. Yeah, sure, that too. Hang on, I'm switching to the suit comm. She tucks the gun into the waistband of her shirt, smooths her jacket over it, and slams the safe shut. Tony, priorities. Fucking priorities, he mutters. His voice sounds strained and just a little shaky. Just don't hang up. I won't, I won't, she reassures. Back in the foyer, everyone is out of their office, standing around in confusion. Keep everyone away from the windows, she tells Jonathan. How close are you? she asks into the phone. Mile out, about three minutes away. Shit, hang on, I'm getting another call. The line goes silent for a minute. There are phones ringing all over in the office, joining the general cacophony of voices. Ms. Potts, there are people trying to get in downstairs, Jonathan says. He turns his computer monitor towards her, where there's a video feed of the first floor CCTV. They look scared. She drops her phone to her shoulder. The people are hammering on the doors while the guards are looking on uncertainly.
let them in, but I don't want anyone making it past the first floor. Lock all the doors. Shut down the elevators. She lifts the phone back to her ear in time to hear Tony say, Rintley, there's a guy. Oh, there he is. There's a guy on our roof, but it's okay. He's one of ours. What? She asks, cupping her hand over her other ear and retreating to the furthest corner from the noise. You remember Agent Romanoff, don't you? He asks. Jarvis Patcherin. Miss Potts, Romanoff says shortly. Hi. We should have this cleared up soon, she says. Then her line goes dead. Lovely woman, Tony comments. It doesn't exactly get cleared up soon. In fact, it's only when Jim and his friends turn up several hours and millions of dollars worth of damage later that they manage to bring the robot down. Pepper's long since used up all the German she knows and retreats into her office to watch the newsfeed in private. Tony on speakerphone. It starts to get rather dull once the thrill of fear wears off, and even the shockwaves from blow after blow to the robot become routine every 15 minutes or so. Things become a little less boring when Tony gets flung into a building and doesn't respond to her for a good ten minutes. Pepper locks her office door and stares at the television until she spots a telltale streak of red and gold in the sky. When the thing is finally on the ground, leaving a twenty-foot-long indent in the road, Pepper's the first in the elevator, going up to the roof to meet Tony. Holy shit, that was a workout, he says. Are you okay? It's dark now, with a chill in the air, but he practically glows in the roof's floodlights. She checks his face, touches the back of his head, and comes away with a red hand. Suit took most of the blow, he says. Little bit dizzy now, though. Head wounds bleed a lot, she says, reassuring herself. It's fine. She wipes as much of the blood as she can on his armor, then wraps her arms around the cool metal of his chest. This seems like a good hug. Wish I could feel it, he mutters. He pats her back carefully with his gloves, then pauses. Pepper! Is that a gun in your waistband, or are you just pleased to see me? She smiles and steps back. It's a gun. Oh, he frowns. Well, that's hot, too. Stark. Jesus, he barks, spinning around. Where the hell did you come from? Natasha stares blankly at him. Her hair is shorter, Pepper notes. It looks good. You'll be debriefed in a couple of days. She turns to leave, exactly where Pepper's not sure because they are 30 floors above street level, but clearly such things aren't a problem for Romanoff. Out of the corner of her eye, Pepper notices a figure on the corner of the roof. He's in shadow, and all she can make out is the outline of cropped hair and some kind of cylindrical protruding from his back.
Hey, Tony shouts, aren't you going to tell me what the hell that thing was? It's confidential, Natasha says. Fuck confidential. It's a robot, and I am the robot guy, Tony reasons. It's beyond your understanding, she says, moving to the edge of the roof. Excuse me? Tony says, taking a couple of steps forward. Wanna run that by me again? Natasha's in shadow too now. We'll contact you if we need you, she says. She makes a gesture to her companion and then they just disappear off the edge of the roof. Fucking hate S.H.I.E.L.D., Tony grouses. Yeah, she agrees. Let's go home. Seriously, fuck S.H.I.E.L.D., Tony says a couple of days later as he walks into the lounge. He drops a gutted laptop on the coffee table, sits down on the couch, and starts poking at it with a screwdriver. Pepper looks up from her stark pad. What did they do? Blocked me from their system, he mutters. You had access to their system? He keeps his eyes trained on the laptop. Well, in the strictest sense of the word, no. He gives the computer another tap. It makes a fzzzt noise in response. He drops the screwdriver like he's been burnt, and the ensuing mini-explosion does, indeed, burn the top of the table. Was that my laptop? She says. He wrinkles his nose and scoots closer to her. I'll make you a new one. What are you doing? Guess, she says. He takes hold of one of her arms and loops it around his neck. You are working, he says, and presses a kiss to her neck. To make sure, another kiss, that I'm looked after. His fingers tug gently at the elastic of her underwear. Like always. She slides the pad off her lap before it becomes a casualty and runs her hand over his hair. He makes a sound of victory and continues his nuzzling efforts, half climbing on top of her to press in. She trails her fingers down to the bump at the base of his skull from the fight, and he breathes in sharply, but doesn't otherwise stop what he's doing. Of course he wouldn't go to a doctor, so she had to wash the blood out of his hair with a sponge, dose him with Advil and Tylenol, and then stay up all that night to make sure he wasn't concussed. Does it still hurt? She asks. Kiss it better? He suggests into her hair. Kisses won't make it hurt less, she says. Mmm, beg to differ, he mumbles. Or we could test out some more erogenous zones. Endorphin makes everything hurt less. That's science. Well, if it's science, she says.
Tony only gets more agitated about S.H.I.E.L.D. in the following days. He even goes so far as to call Coulson and offer his professional services, but it is politely turned down. There have been stories coming out of New Mexico for the last few weeks about some kind of weapons testing gone wrong. Pepper was happy to ignore it because, honestly, when don't people have conspiracy theories about New Mexico? But Tony's all over it. Apparently, there was a remote drone versus man showdown in Puente Antego that the government is covering up. The sad thing is, Pepper's starting to believe it just a little. Colson is being more evasive than normal. Mostly, it means that Tony has a new thing to rant about and obsess over, and he does both admirably. His staggering genius and their unfathomable stupidity are topics of discussion on the agenda every night, and sometimes on the phone in the middle of important meetings. In the end, the only thing to do is call in reinforcements. Thanks for this, she says, glancing back at Jim as she lets them into the house. I know you've been busy with whatever being the Air Force liaison to S.H.I.E.L.D. entails. I'd tell you, but then I'd have to kill you, he says, catching the door and pushing it all the way open. You know, Tony's said that before, but he always caves and ends up telling me everything. That's because he's still an excitable little kid at heart. And you are, of course, a very manly man. She kicks her shoes off and nudges them so they line up against the wall. Jim follows suit. Very manly, he agrees. Pepper! She hears Tony call before she sees him. His footsteps slap against the polished floors, and it sounds like he's not wearing any shoes. She's told him so many times that it's dangerous considering the sort of things he gets up to. You're home early. I thought we could maybe watch... He comes to the stop in the foyer. He comes to a stop in the foyer, looking at Jim and frowning. Oh, hey, Rody. Please, Tony, I'm gonna blush. Jim wanted to come by and see how you are. Yeah, I haven't really seen you since... in a little while, he says. Sorry, man. Yeah, I haven't really seen you since... in a while he says. Sorry, man. Yeah, it's good to see you. He grins, and it looks genuine enough. Jim returns it, and they hug in that back-slapping, holding-on-too-long way that they have. She eyes his worn sweatpants and t-shirt. Maybe you should change into something less comfortable, she says. Nope he says breezily, throwing an arm around Jim and dragging him towards the lounge. My house, my rules. She leaves them to trade mostly good-natured insults and heads upstairs to change out of her work clothes. Tony's clothes are strewn all over the floor, hanging off the backs of chairs, hanging off the end of the bed. She steps around them. <laughs> you big baby.
She steps around them as best she can and sits down on the edge of the bed, bending to roll her stockings down. She's down to her underwear when the door creaks open. Hey, let me do that, Tony says and has her bra undone before she's even turned around to look at him. He knows far more about bras than she does. Yikes, he says, running his fingers along where it dug in on her sides and left angry red welts. This looks painful. It was hot today, she says. She had a potential client who she had to take out to one of their manufacturing plants. He wanted to see every part of the operation before he agreed to invest, and while she approved of his business plan, she found it tested the limits of her patience more than a little. SI plants are uniformly hot and loud, and she was hardly dressed for the trip. He ducks his head a little and presses his lips to one of the welts, tongue running along the raised skin gently. He leans around, nose pressing against her breasts as he follows the line. That feels nice she says, allowing herself to shiver a little. And you said kisses don't make things hurt less, he murmurs, throws one leg over hers, and tries to nudge her onto her back. Tony, we have a guest, she says. It's only Rody, he mumbles, moving around to nuzzle between her breasts who took time out of his day especially to see you, she says, sighing, since you haven't been keeping in touch. Been busy. You have not. You've barely left the house in two months. She pushes her fingers into his hair and tilts his head back to look at her. Tony. He presses his forehead against her chest, then sits back. Fine, I'll go play with my friend, seeing as how you went to the trouble of setting up a play date for me. She shakes her head at him, but from the look in his eyes, she knows that he realizes that this was her doing. He lets go anyway, shuffles out of the room, grumbling all the way. When she joins them downstairs, five minutes later, Jim is suggesting they go to a club. It's just open and... He says, glancing up at her. She nods for him to continue. There's no way I'll get in without you. You at a club? Tony rolls his eyes. I do have a level of coolness to maintain, you know. Jim raises an eyebrow. While you're a shut-in? Sure. Tony mutters something and grabs Pepper by the waist as she passes, pulling her down on the couch next to him. I have better things to do with my time, he says and leans very pointedly against her side. You should go, she says. He looks at her in surprise and she has to steel herself against his bush baby eyes. It's been a while since you've gone out and had fun and I've got work to do that I could get done a lot faster without you hanging around. Oh, well, his hand on her waist loosens. 
If I'm so captivating that you can't focus on anything else when I'm around, I guess I'll have to go. If I'm so captivating that you can't focus on anything else when I'm around, I guess I'll have to go. She gives him a kiss on the cheek. That's the spirit. She isn't lying about the amount of work she has to do. It's not really more than normal. It just so happens that she always has mountains of contracts and emails and letters to read and write every evening, and Tony has an extremely distracting presence, whether he's there or not, apparently, because once he leaves, she gets even less work done than she normally would. It's hypocritical, to say the least, because she was the one who suggested the club to Jim, but she spends the whole evening checking her phone, checking news sites, and checking Twitter, despite Jarvis's promise that he has a thorough search algorithm in place for any mention of Tony on the internet, and that he'll let her know the moment anything happens. She gives up on trying to get anything done around midnight, and opts, instead, to get into bed and stare at the ceiling. This is what she wants. She doesn't want Tony to stay in the house all day waiting for her to come home. She doesn't want him to sit in his workshop and obsess over S.H.I.E.L.D. She wants him to spend time with people other than her. She also wants him at home where she can keep an eye on him. She gets her wish at just after one, when Jarvis quietly informs her that that Tony has arrived back without incident. Tony's upstairs a couple of minutes later, stripping his t-shirt and jeans off and crawling into bed. He rests his head on her stomach and sighs. I didn't expect you home for a while, she says, double-checking the clock. 1.16 a.m. He was out for just over five hours, and she knows that the drive to L.A. would have taken at least 40 minutes each way. Boring, he says. He draws his legs up towards his chest and hooks one of them around hers. Girls were all over Rhodey. He lifts his head and looks at her. Pepper, he says gravely. I think I've become the friend. His smile belays his tone, though, and he lowers his head again, pressing a kiss near her belly button. I've always said that Jim was the sexy one, she says quietly, hoping that she's measured her tone correctly and that he won't notice she's hardly in the mood to joke. But I was the pretty one, he says in a whiny voice. Tell me I'm still pretty, even though I'm old and I've let myself go. She manages a chuckle at this. <laughs> You're still pretty, she says, and pats him on the head. Good, he says, wrapping himself more tightly around her. She meets Jim for lunch the next day, in between meetings, and they go to the same cafe that they used to go to when they were doing whatever they used to do, where the staff snarl at the customers and only ever look at money and never faces. So, she says, and takes a sip of her lemonade. So, 
Jim echoes. Tony was acting kind of strange yesterday. Hmm, I didn't even smell any alcohol on him. Did he drink anything? Her fresh lemonade tastes like it came straight out of a plastic bottle, but the relative anonymity of the place is worth it. He ordered something, but I don't think he touched it. Jim taps his fingers against the tabletop and smiles ruefully. Are we honestly worried about the fact that he isn't drinking excessively? It's not just that. He barely goes out anymore, and his interest in the company has all but disappeared. He wants me to be CEO permanently. He doesn't even care about it anymore. Jim shrugs. I don't know. He's never cared that much about the company. His dad never made much of an effort to get him involved, and Stain pretty much destroyed any remaining confidence he had about his ability to run it. That's what I'm afraid of. This last year has been... She can feel herself beginning to cry and takes a steadying breath to rein it in. From the way Jim is looking at her, he can tell. It's been awful. I'm only barely getting through it, and I can't even imagine what it's like for Tony because he won't tell me. I know. He scrubs his hand over his face. He won't talk to me either, but that's what he's always like. Always has been. Well, I don't know that I can deal with it anymore. She fiddles with her napkin as she talks, folding it in half, then half again. I can't be his entire support system all the time. I need him to... function. I don't think that's... likely right now. Jim shrugs again, sympathetically. As far as I can tell, this is what he does when he's in a relationship. I mean, it's all new territory, really. But he does have a tendency to... obsess. Maybe it will get better. Maybe? That isn't filling me with confidence. She plucks at one corner of the napkin and sets it down on the table between their plates. It's a swan, she says. I used to work as a caterer. You're a woman of many talents. He presses his lips together and sighs. You know how Tony latches on to people. When does he latch off? Three to six months. That's normally how long it takes for either him to turn on them or them to turn on him. So you're already ahead. Look. He pushes his uneaten sandwich away, tipping the napkin swan over. He had you, me, and Stain. And when Stain... He waves his hands vaguely before resting them on the edge of the table. His first relationship ended because she tried to steal secrets from the company. She was almost 20 and he was 16, and I should have stopped it. After that, and his parents' death, he relied on Stain for everything. And then... And that's it. We're all he has now. 
and he's been in love with you for like 10 years. I think he heaps all this crap on you because he'd go crazy if he didn't have someone he could trust. And why can't he trust you? Because I'm not a five foot nine redhead, and I think we've established that I'm not anyone's second best. Except for the whole cut price Iron Man thing, of course. He braces his hands on his chair's armrests and pushes it back. Look, I'm sorry, I've got to get back to base. Of course. She looks at her mostly uneaten lunch and pushes her own chair back. I'll walk with you. They walk in companionable silence back to their cars while she keeps an eye out for the press. She doesn't see any telltale flashes or rustling of bushes, but every other person sitting outside the many cafes has a laptop, and she's beginning to become as recognizable as Tony. When she gets to her car, she turns to Jim and touches his arm. Maybe you could come by again soon, or call... Get Tony to do something for the Air Force. Fix a plane. Blow up something. My commanding officer doesn't really care for Tony, but I'll see what I can do. He takes a step closer and hugs her. Just a quick squeeze, but she's already scanning the area for how many people are looking, wondering what the press would make of this. She sort of hates herself for that. Hey he says, pulling back and cupping his hands over her shoulders. Just try not to break his heart, and please don't let him break yours. Her smile feels tight on her face. I'll try. She starts waking up alone by the beginning of July. Jarvis tells her almost the moment she wakes up the first time that Tony is fine. He's down in the workshop making adjustments to the suit. He was feeling itchy, Jarvis relays to her. She lets it be for the first couple of days. Tony's always come up to say goodbye to her in the morning, and he's always hanging around the front door in the evening when she comes home. They still sit in the kitchen or the lounge or sometimes in bed, eat dinner, and watch TV. He still falls asleep first, cheek mashed against her shoulder, and in the morning, Jarvis calmly informs her of his exact whereabouts. He also tells her that Tony is only sleeping an average of four hours a night, a considerable drop from the ten hours of just a few weeks ago, and the, frankly, coma-like states he used to be able to achieve. The first day he doesn't meet her by the door, she rushes down to the workshop to find him half-encased in the suit. Tony, she sighs, relieved. Hey, he says and tries to tug his arm free. Shit, dummy, come on. It's not his fault, Jarvis says primly. You rewired the arm incorrectly. Like shit I did. You did. A holographic diagram fills the air in front of him. I told you to pay closer attention to what you were doing. Well, fuck you too, he mutters. Just take the whole thing apart then. Sheet, do I have to think of everything? 
He smiles at her as Dummy and Butterfingers move around him to disassemble the armor. She found him unconscious on this spot two months ago, she thinks. Amid rubble and debris, and although he's better now, he still looks completely exhausted. She walks up to him as sections of the armor begin coming away and rests her hands on his chest. She can feel hard muscle underneath his thin shirt. Hey, he says, eyes half-lidded. I'm putting you to bed after this, she says. Sounds good to me, he replies. She still wakes up alone the next morning. On the following Monday, there's an article on the sixth page of the Wall Street Journal with the headline, Business World Commemorates One-Year Anniversary of Obadiah Stane's Death. Oh, fuck, she mutters and shoves her e-reader into her bag before Tony wanders into the kitchen. Tony kisses her goodbye at the door, and neither of them mention it, even though she can practically feel him vibrating with tension, and she probably isn't much better. She can't imagine how she forgot, except, except that perhaps she didn't really want to remember. She can't imagine how she forgot, except that, perhaps, she didn't really want to remember. Curiously, she hasn't gotten any invitations or calls from Stane's friends in the past few weeks, although today she gets calls all morning from the media, and after the fifth one, she tells Jonathan just to hang up on them. Rhody calls her in the early afternoon and reports that Tony's answering his phone and at least sounds sober. She decides not to call him herself, but rather get through as many of her commitments as quickly as possible and get home. She manages to get everything that is absolutely necessary by six and bails from the office without saying goodbye to Jonathan. Once in the car, Jarvis remotely filters out all calls to her phone that aren't from pre-approved numbers, and she's able to make it home in relative peace. Until, with about ten minutes to go before she hits the private road of the house, she notices that she's being tailed, and she's made absolutely sure of this fact when the car follows and she's made absolutely sure of this fact when the car follows her past the trespassers will be prosecuted sign that heralds the beginning of Tony's private property. Should I call Mr. Stark? Jarvis asks. No, she says because, God, she doesn't even want to imagine what he'd do in the state he's in at the moment. Not yet. I can handle it. Of that, I am sure, Jarvis replies. She continues driving as if nothing's the matter, doesn't slow down or speed up. The only concession she makes is to tell Jarvis not to open the garage door for her. She rolls to a stop in front of it instead and parks, then calmly collects up her things and gets out. Her unwelcome companion pulls up and smoothly parks alongside. Ms. Potts, the driver says. She doesn't seem to make much of an effort to raise her voice, but it carries anyway. Pepper turns her head to the side. Miss Romanoff, 
she acknowledges, then continues on her way to the front door. May I come in, or will the house kill me? Romanoff asks, almost lazily. You'd have to ask Jarvis that, she replies, but shuffles over a couple of steps to allow Romanoff to pass by her when she unlocks the door. What do you want? A director Fury wants to know how Mr. Stark is handling things today. He felt he might not get an honest answer out of either of you. Clever man, Pepper mutters. She takes her shoes off, lines them up against the wall, as always, and moves further into the house. Well, he's fine. May I speak with him? You can do whatever you like. I'm not his keeper. Romanoff raises an eyebrow at that. Awesome timing, Tony yells, and she's surprised to find that his voice is coming from upstairs. I'm almost ready! Ready? She repeats, turning to watch as he thumps downstairs in clean socks, pants, and a white shirt. Ready for what? Ready to paint the town red, my beautiful CEO. He skids to a halt in front of her and slings an arm around her shoulders, then frowns at Romanoff. Am I dying again? Why are you here? Tony, Pepper mutters, and he grins with all his teeth at the two of them. She wonders for a second if he's taken something, but the memory of him this morning comes back to her and she decides that this is probably all him. Agent Romanoff is here to check up on you. Oh, well, drink it in, then get out. At Romanoff's expressionless face, he makes a flickering gesture with his hand. Get out of my house, Agent Scary. Mm-hmm, she murmurs and pulls her phone out to tap at it. Telling Daddy on me, Tony spits. His arm around Pepper's shoulders grips tight and hard. She slips her hand under the waistband of his pants and rubs circles into his hip bone with her thumb. Romanoff merely lifts her eyes, then neatly turns around and strides back out of the house. And stay out, he mutters. Why don't we move this upstairs, Pepper says softly, thumbs still pressed against his hip, once Romanoff has closed the door behind her. Would that we could, Pep, but we have reservations. He presses a kiss to the side of her head, then pulls away and starts poking around in the hall closet. Reservations, she repeats. For what? For dinner, of course. He tosses her green coat to her and starts pulling on his leather jacket. That's what people do when it's time to celebrate, don't they? He drops to his knees and starts picking through piles of shoes that never remain neat no matter how many times she goes back to arrange them. When it becomes obvious that he's going to take his time over this task, she begins to slip her coat on. Sure, Tony, she says. She agrees to the dinner because it would be hypocritical to do otherwise when Tony is so suddenly eager to leave the house, and she doesn't know what else to do with him other than let him wear himself out like a child having a tantrum, though 
for once, the comparison is hardly apt. He takes her to Cicada, smiles and waves for the paparazzi that are ready and waiting for them, gets them a little table in the corner which only serves to draw more attention to them, and orders all the most expensive things on the menu. I'm not going to be able to eat even half of that, she says quietly after the waiter has departed, though not before giving them a bottle of wine on the house, of course. I'll donate it to the poor then, he replies, indicating vaguely to the people around them. He drains his first glass and reaches over for the bottle to refill it. This stuff is terrible. Do you want some? No thanks. Someone has to drive us home. She purses her lips as he knocks back another half glass in one go. There are people looking at them out of the corner of their eyes, conversations being carried on behind napkins and hands. Try not to get stinking drunk before the appetizers arrive, she says stiffly. Aye, aye, he mutters, going back for a second refill. The place is very romantic. She's been here before a couple of times, for private functions, and coming here on a date is certainly something she would normally enjoy, having developed a taste for the finer things in life, or so Tony says. Tonight is not exactly how she would have liked it to go, yet is probably exactly what she expected. Tony eats his appetizer quickly, but picks at the main course, preferring to go back to the terrible wine again and again. So, he says loudly after some time brooding over his meal, how's the company doing? That asshole Iron Man isn't causing you too much trouble. Tony, she warns, keep your voice down. Or is it the other asshole? He continues in a fake conspiratorial tone. I hear the guy in the suit is a real fucker. She kicks him under the table and he grins, his tongue caught between his teeth. Didn't think you were into that sort of stuff. Keep your voice down, she repeats evenly. Or what? he says, locking his gaze on her. His eyes look a little watery, and there's color high on his cheeks. She's seen him like this before, usually when he's about to spin out in spectacular fashion. She stares back at him, unblinking, and incredibly, he breaks first, glancing down at the table. Um... He starts before being interrupted. Mr. Stark, you don't know me, the young man begins, shifting uncomfortably when Tony's confused gaze turns to him. But I worked with Mr. Stain a couple of years ago, and I just wanted to tell you how sorry I am for your loss. Tony continues to stare at him blankly for a second before a smile snaps into place, and... He straightens up in his chair. That's very kind of you, Mr. Garfield, Nicholas Garfield, the man says. I work as outside legal counsel for Stark Industries. 
My fault, no doubt, Tony jokes and holds out his hand. Thank you for thinking of me, Nick. Garfield takes his hand shyly, then stays an awkward moment longer before returning to his table. Tony turns back to Pepper, and she sees the exact moment that his resolve crumbles. I have got to get out of here, he mumbles, and she's already half out of her seat, waving for the waiter to fetch their coats. She takes him by the arm as calmly as she can, careful not to make it into even more of a scene than it already is. It's fine, she says. You're fine. You're fine. Pepper, he whispers back, a hitch in his voice. She grabs the coat out of the waiter's hands as she passes him and tells him to put the bill on their tab. Whether they even have one, she's not sure, but they don't argue with her. The car's just out there, she reassures, and nods politely as the doorman opens the door for them. The valet outside jumps to attention and rushes off to get the car. She drapes Tony's jacket over his shoulders as he takes short gasps of air and turns his face towards her, hunching away from the camera flashes. You're fine, she repeats, and look, here's the car. She tips the valet and settles Tony as best she can in the passenger seat before getting in the other side and starting the car. Tony hunches over and laces his fingers together behind his neck. She reaches over, eyes on the road, and rubs his back. Feeling any better? He barks with laughter and lifts his head. For a couple of minutes, he stares out the window, breathing shakily breathing shakily and rarely blinking. Then he slams his palm down on the dashboard again and again and again. Fuck, he yells, fuck, 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 kicking at the well of the car for good measure. Tony, she says, and then louder over his shouting, Tony, stop it, you're going to make me crash. He falls back against the seat, going limp. I'm sorry, he mumbles. I thought it would be good to get out and prove that... that... fuck, I don't even know. I shouldn't be allowed to do anything on my own. You wanted to prove that you were okay, she says, glancing at him for a second, then back at the road. Then back at the road. And you are... You don't even know how good you are. Yeah, okay, he says, the corner of his mouth tilting up in a half-hearted smirk. You're a good person, Tony. I wish you'd believe that, she says softly as he sinks further into his seat. He grunts something and looks out the window. When we get home, do you want to blow something up? He rolls his head back to her and smiles. Yeah, he says. Thanks. She's not sure what's woken her up at first, a few hours after Tony has blown up everything blown upable. Tony's not in bed anymore, but she's starting to get used to that 
and it's four in the morning, which is about the normal amount of sleep for him now. She flattens out the bunched sheets and looks up at the ceiling, cataloging the things she has to do when she gets up in a little over two hours. Then she hears the sound that she's well acquainted with, that retching and rattled inhale. She's out of bed before she even fully processes it, skids into the bathroom, switches on the light, and is confronted with the sight of Tony picking himself up off the floor and moving to the sink. Something really disagreed with me, he says and turns the faucet on. She lets him wash his face and gargle some water before she grabs him and turns him around. She pushes his t-shirt up roughly and runs her finger along the arc reactor. No sign of what happened before, but then palladinium isn't powering anything anymore. Who knows how poisoning from this new element would manifest? Turn around, she says quietly. He bites his lip, but complies without a word. She checks his back for bruises or marks or rashes and comes up empty. Clutching at his waist, she rests her forehead between his shoulder blades. God, are you... Just bad dreams, he says and turns around again, gently freeing himself from her grip for a moment before gathering her up against his chest. He's pale and clammy against her skin. She squeezes his arm and steps back. Why didn't you wake me up? Kind of busy puking, he says flippantly, but his eyes tell a different story. Look, I just had... He takes a breath and swallows. A nightmare, and I guess it took me by surprise. He smiles thinly and shrugs. His t-shirt is still rucked up under his armpits, so she tugs it back down and smooths it out, fussing with it to get it straight. She's hardly even aware that she's still pulling at it till his hands wrap around her wrists loosely. Jarvis, he says softly, pushing her hands between them and folding them over her chest. Tell Pepper I'm okay. Mr. Stark's latest blood results all came back clean. As of this morning, his blood pressure was 120 over 80. His heart rate is presently elevated, but that is probably understandable given the circumstances. See, he says and lifts her hands to his mouth. His beard tickles her fingers when he kisses them. And you can ask him anything you want, whenever you want. You have global permissions over the entire system. There's nothing he won't tell you. She frowns. Tony. And in case I ever get really stupid again, he interrupts, it can't be reversed. That's too much, she says. Tony has always kept extremely tight control on who has access to Jarvis. Even Stain couldn't take him over. I don't want to hurt you like I have in the past, he continues as if he hadn't heard her. 
I don't want to be that guy anymore. This is just an insurance plan. Which, uh, you're also on. And sole beneficiary of my life insurance policy. He folds his fingers around hers and stares at her until she meets his eyes. She was the one who got him that policy. She knows how much it's worth. <laughs> Let's, uh... She says, trying to ignore his wide-eyed stare as much as she can. Let's go back to bed, okay? He smiles. Good idea, he says. She locks herself in her office that afternoon and gets Jonathan to hold all her calls. She's been on edge all day since she and Tony went back to bed, and he slept, and she didn't. She dials the extension for Jarvis. Yes, Miss Potts, he says, the phone call answered after the first ring. I have to ask you some questions, she says. Anything, he replies, and that's precisely what she's afraid of. Can I ask you about the contents of Tony's will? There's a pause, and then, yes. Damn. Who has he left his money and property to? His suits, prototypes, and related effects are bequeathed to Lieutenant Colonel Rhodes under the proviso that the Air Force engineers keep their dirty paws off them. Good, she breathes. Mr. Stark's properties and accumulated wealth and possessions, paying particular mind to Butterfingers and Dummy so as not to break up the family, are... Left to you, Ms. Potts. She presses the back of her hand against her mouth and closes her eyes. His accumulated wealth is... He's already given her his company, and now he wants to give her everything else? She doesn't even want to think about the deeds to his houses and cars. What is he thinking? What does he think is going to happen? It's pointless to wonder because she already knows. She knows how easily, how desperately, he'll give over control of his life to someone else. She's known it since a couple months in, really, that he doesn't trust himself with anything more important than a party and a quick fuck, and even those have a history of ending badly for him. Had when Stain was around and after when he was dying again. Had when Stain was around and after when he was dying again because of Stain. Jarvis, she says, and she sees from the clock that five minutes have passed in silence. The AI is a Constance, though, and answers her immediately. Could you please tell Mr. Stark some urgent business has come up and that... She cringes before the words are even out. I won't be home tonight. Yes, Miss Potts, he says, and 
She hopes she's just projecting that note of judgment in his flat voice. She spends her first night back in her apartment in weeks, cleaning and listening out for her phone. The place is covered in a thin layer of dust, and most of her comforts, her books, her good underwear, her favorite slippers, are at the mansion, but she can make do. It seems bizarrely small now, in a way that it never did before despite her having spent much more time in the mansion than she ever had here. Her bed seems tiny, and she only manages a couple hours sleep the first night, unimpeded by a clingy, warm body. Her phone doesn't ring. She works, and she comes back to her apartment and... Her phone doesn't ring. Well, it rings, but it's never Tony on the other end of the line. Jim texts her after a couple of days. Have you two killed each other? Why is everyone ignoring my calls? No, she texts back, to which he simply responds with a question mark. Later, she replies with very little intention of following up on that. Tony hasn't gotten himself into the papers yet, which is a good thing, or maybe it's not, but she's fairly certain now that Jarvis would contact her if anything major were to happen to him. He just needs time, she thinks, or she does, or they both do. She needs to separate herself from the situation just long enough to regroup, something that is damn near impossible with Tony around force of nature that he is. And he definitely needs some perspective, needs to remember that there's a world outside and that he had a life before her once. I should have stopped it, she remembers Jim saying. Parents dead at 20, Stain dominating his every move. Maybe it isn't such a surprise that he isn't anxious to go back to his life. Still, she's never given in to his most self-destructive tendencies before, and this is surely self-destruction, slower and less threatening, but as unhealthy as anything else he's done, nonetheless. She isn't going to start enabling him now. A week passes, and she begins to feel less anxious, more guilty, but less anxious, and she's used to that guilt by now. She can live with that. She can't live with Romanoff striding into her office unannounced and uninvited, though. Get out before I call security, she says mildly. Did you know, Romanoff says, closing the door softly behind her, that Mr. Stark hasn't been answering any of our calls, and that when Agent Coulson was dispatched to investigate, he directed the house to fire on our vehicles. Pepper closes her laptop. Is Tony okay? Romanoff huffs in disgust. The two of you are as bad as each other. Maybe it's time you go home, Ms. Potts. This is none of your business, agent. 
It becomes my business when your boyfriend has a meltdown and severely inconveniences my bosses. She pulls out the chair in front of Pepper's desk and drops down into it. Pepper scowls at her. You still have no right to pry into my personal life. Romanoff regards her for a moment, then says, Would you like to have a drink with me tonight? I... what? Pepper snaps her laptop completely shut. Pepper leans back. Are you asking me out? Because me and Tony are still... Ms. Potts, Romanoff interrupts. If I were asking you out on a date, you would know it, and Anthony Stark would not be an issue. Pepper can't help but silently accept this as the truth. Romanoff continues. I was just thinking that you might want to... Talk about these problems that you are having. Get a perspective other than that of Lieutenant Colonel Rhodes. Pepper opens her mouth to ask how she knows about her conversations with Jim, but decides that line of questioning will lead nowhere fast. Instead, she says, Well, I suppose there aren't a lot of people I can talk to openly these days, and... I don't have a lot of female friends. I don't have any friends, Romanoff adds and smiles. Pepper shrugs. I get off work in a couple of hours. Romanoff lives in a penthouse in North Hollywood, or she has possession of a penthouse in North Hollywood, it might be more accurate to say because the place is still showroom fresh. I didn't realize that S.H.I.E.L.D. paid so well, Pepper comments, tallying up in her head how much the contents are worth. There's ten grand worth of artwork alone. I didn't always work for S.H.I.E.L.D., you know. Romanoff hands her a glass and fills it with something out of an unmarked bottle. That's poison the voice in Pepper's head that sounds like Tony says. No, Pepper agrees. You used to work for me, Ms. Rushman. Romanoff waves her to a couch. It was a job, Pepper. I'm not going to apologize for it. Do you apologize when you steal contracts from other companies? Are we on a first-name basis now? Romanoff sits down beside her and clinks their glasses together. Yes, she says. I'm Natasha. Pleased to meet you. She takes a long drink from her glass and Pepper decides that it's probably not poison unless Natasha has some sort of antidote that she's going to inject herself with later and, frankly, Pepper can't find the energy to be that suspicious. She takes a sip and almost spits it back out again. This is awful. Natasha smiles and takes the glass from Pepper, tipping the liquid into her own. This was given to me by the grateful head of a rebel army from his private collection. Should have realized you were a lightweight. I don't think we're at the stage in this relationship where you can insult me yet. Natasha shrugs and sets the two glasses down on the table. 
I think I have some good old-fashioned American wine in the kitchen. Apparently, Natasha doesn't get drunk, and Pepper watches her carefully to know that she isn't just pouring the wine into a flower pot or something. Frankly, it's a little scary and more than a little depressing because Natasha is tiny and really has no right to hold her own like this. She simply says, I'm Russian. So, what has Stark done? She asks sometime and half a bottle later. Did he cheat on you? Because, frankly, I saw that coming. What? No! Pepper puts her glass down before she spills it everywhere. No, he didn't do anything like that. Drinking too much? Natasha guesses again. He made a bit of a scene at the cicada last week. No, he's... he's just a little... She shakes her head. Why is she even telling Natasha this? Isn't she still angry at her for the betrayal and all? He's a little suffocating sometimes. Ah, Natasha nods wisely. I can see that. But... Pepper sighs. She has a really high tolerance for betrayal. That's not the problem, really. It's that he's so codependent, and I'm finding myself drawn into it with him. I mean, I've always worried about him, and now he's so willing to let me run every part of his life, and there's a part of me that's thinking, good, I'll never let him go outside, and then nothing will happen to him, and it's really, really fucked up. She slumps into the couch cushion in defeat. There, that's it. She's said it. She's just as crazy as he is. Natasha continues nodding, then rouses. Well, some relationships just don't work out. But I love him. Pepper blurts out, then frowns. There's another thing she's never said out loud. Love isn't everything. Natasha runs a hand through her hair. There have been people in the past who I've loved, some I've never seen again because they're the enemy now, others I keep crashing back into, but either way, you can't make a thing fit if it just doesn't. Pepper mulls this over. She sounds sincere enough that Pepper believes her, despite her wondering exactly how many times can Natasha have experienced that sort of epic love. She's only 26, isn't she? I think, she says, finally, with great precision, that that's bullshit. Oh? You can make anything work if you try hard enough. Natasha blinks slowly. Maybe you can, she says and takes another sip. Yes, I can, Pepper says and punctuates it with a nod. She's always been able to make things work. That was one of the reasons that Tony had hired her. That's what they both always fell back on, that she could cope with anything.
You just couldn't this time, Natasha points out. And there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes things just fail. Pepper's first instinct is to argue over Natasha's definition of failure, but the alcohol has dulled her senses enough to let it go. It sounds like you're speaking from experience. Natasha simply says, yes. And would you like to elaborate on that? Not especially, Natasha replies. She stares at Pepper as if they're in a staring contest that Pepper hasn't been informed of. After a couple of seemingly unblinking moments, she takes a deep breath and shakes her head. He's older than me. We met on the job in Russia. We didn't fit. You seem a little hung up on it, if you don't mind me saying. Natasha's look suggests that she does mind Pepper's saying. I don't think we're at the stage in this relationship where you can give me unsolicited advice yet, she says, recalling Pepper's words from before. You're extremely difficult to get along with, Miss Rushmoff, Romanoff. Man, she frowns. Why have you got so many names anyway? You're a cute drunk, Natasha says and pats her on the knee. Pepper blows out a scornful breath. Stop flirting with me. Wow. Natasha stands up, turns and plucks the glass of wine from Pepper's hands. You really are perfect for Stark. I think I'm going to have to cut you off now. She breezes out of the room, shaking her head, leaving Pepper on her expensive leather couch. She misses him, she realizes. God, she really misses him. Natasha said she hadn't fit with her ex, but Pepper, she fits. Or rather, Tony fits her, clicked into her life despite appearances to the contrary. There's a very good reason why she's been with him so long. She wanted to be. Shit, she says. I'll call for a car, Natalia calls from the kitchen. It's a good thing that S.H.I.E.L.D. agents are bred to be discreet because the state she's in when she gets into the car, the tabloids would be overjoyed. The agent drives in blessed silence back to Malibu while she tries to sober up and fix her wilting makeup. She considers calling ahead, but she honestly doesn't know what she'd say. And she doesn't want to have this conversation within hearing range of an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., no matter how unassuming he may be. When he drops her off an hour later, she makes damn sure that he's cleared the outer reaches of the property before she makes her way back inside. The house looks the same, in such a way that it seems like it hasn't been touched at all since she's left. Tony's shoes are exactly where he left them when he got back from the restaurant, along with his jacket and a stack of unopened mail. From deeper in the house, she can hear the muffled bass line of ACDC. That is rarely a good sign. 
Jarvis obliges her by turning the lights on as she moves through the house, though he doesn't address her, and she has the distinct feeling that he's angry with her. If any computer could get angry, it'd be Tony's. Her access code still works for the workshop, though, and she stands in the doorway for a moment and watches Tony fight with Dummy. Give that back, he says as Dummy whisks away a soldering iron. He will not give it back, Jarvis says over the mic, and I have turned the power off to all the heavy machinery to prevent further injury. You're not my real mom, Tony replies sulkily, and turns enough to the side that she can see the poorly applied gauze wrapped around his left hand. Tony, she says, and the music dies away in the same moment. He starts and looks around at her. I, he says, and focuses it somewhere around her knees. He takes an unsteady step backwards. Are you going to quit too? Because I'll, I'll do more work for the company, or less. If you never want to see me again, then I'll get out of your face. But don't, don't leave because the company, it would never. And you're, you should have it. You're the one who knows. And I can't. Tony, she repeats. And then again, as he continues to talk. Tony, Tony, I'm not quitting. His gaze remains fixed on her knees. You're not? No, did you think? She takes a few faltering steps forward until she's standing right in front of him. The smell of alcohol is quite overpowering. She slides her palms against his unshaven cheeks and tilts his face up. Did you think that we broke up? He nods between her hands. Oh, Tony... We didn't break up. He narrows his eyes. I didn't, and I'm not breaking up with you, she clarifies. His face goes slack for a minute, then crinkles in a frown. But... He sways slightly on the spot, gaze growing vague for a minute before snapping back to her face. You said you needed space. Yeah, and I got space. When people say they want space, that means they're leaving, he says with great effort, as if finding the words is a struggle. She wonders how much he's been drinking. She wonders, as always, how he's managed to keep going for so long. She jostles him gently, sliding her hands towards his hair thumbs resting on his jaw. I'm not people. No, he agrees and stares at her, expression completely open. But... Tony, she says, cutting him off. If I ever want to break up with you, I will tell you that, okay? I won't leave you hanging. I'm sorry if... She stops to collect her thoughts. She isn't exactly sober herself, and she really doesn't feel any more capable of dealing with this than he does. 
I'm just sorry. She settles on, though it hardly communicates everything that she means to say. You're not leaving me? He asks, bottom lip caught between his teeth. She pulls him against her into a hug. God, Tony, she mutters into his greasy hair. No, let's get you showered and sober up, then we can talk. After being hosed down, caffeinated, and fed, Tony is considerable more functional and less clingy and sniffly. Have you eaten at all while I've been away? She asks as he demolishes his second sandwich. You've been gone for over a week, he says, spraying crumbs all over the kitchen table. She's not sure whether that's supposed to be confirmation or denial. Okay, she says. We really need to talk. Please don't leave me, he says so quickly the words run together. Tony! He swallows the last of the sandwich and nods. Right, sorry. He goes quiet and watches her. He's listening to her, she belatedly realizes, just when she'd maybe like him to run his mouth off for a little while longer. Well, she says, this relationship, we just sort of fell into it without any discussion, even though I really needed to talk things out with you. Sorry, he says again, completely sincere. This newfound sincerity scares her, she thinks. He's far, far too vulnerable like this. No, it's not... It's me. I need to talk to you, but I kept putting it off. He frowns. Why? I can maintain an adult conversation for a few minutes, Pep. I know you can, and I suppose that was part of the problem. His frown deepens. I don't get it. She thinks about it. It's difficult to explain because she doesn't really get it either. You scare me. She settles on, and his frown immediately smooths out as his eyebrows climb and his eyes widen. Pepper, I would never, I'd never hurt you. I'd never cheat on you. I'd, I'd... He chokes on the rest of the words, and she reaches across the table to take his hand. I'm scared for you, she says, not of you. He shakes his head wordlessly. She rubs his hand between hers. Too cold, she thinks. Always too cold. It scares me, she says, picking her words carefully, that you seem to have such little concern for yourself. You've been giving so much to me and getting nothing back. First time anyone's accused me of not getting any, he replies, a hint of a smile on his face. And I'm pretty sure I get stuff back from you, like love and sex and everything. There's that vulnerability again. 
He's been more open with her in the last two months than he has in 12 years. And it seems like he's just leaving himself open to getting so badly hurt with this new fumbling honesty. What scares me, she continues, still not quite able to address this head on, is that you seem so happy to let me control everything. Nothing new there, he interrupts. Not like this. You want me to sign off on every little thing you do, and the thing is, sometimes I like it, and it's not healthy. You have to stop being scared of yourself. You can't leave everything to me in your will and give me full access to Jarvis and name me on your life insurance plan. Not all at once. Not after dating for eight weeks. But I trust you, Pep. It's not like I met you in a club a couple of months ago or something. I've known you for over a decade. I've been in love with you for at least a decade. He shrugs helplessly and smiles. She lets go of his hand and stands up, taking care not to focus long on his face and the way it seems to crumble. See, this is... this is what I mean. What? He says, his voice going high-pitched. What? He says, his voice going high-pitched. What? Pepper, what do you want me to do? I'm really trying fucking hard here, and and I don't know what to do. You know full well that I don't know what to do, and I'm trying to work it out. I'm trying not to put it all on you, but you have to give me something. His voice grows steadily in pitch until he's shouting at her, having pushed back from the table to stand as well, hands braced against the tabletop. Exactly! She shouts back, I have to give something back. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't, I've never even told you I love you. He rocks back a little, mouth opening and closing wordlessly, expression confused. You don't have to, he says, dialing back down to normal volume. Why don't I have to? She asks, still shouting. He looks even more confused. Because you show it. I mean, you put up with me, so you must love me. She presses her knuckles against her eyelids and shakes her head. That's the problem. You should care about whether I say it back or not. Putting up with you shouldn't be enough. You shouldn't be okay with me avoiding saying it. Are you so scared that I don't love you back? Or do you just not think anyone will ever say it to you? Bit of both, I guess. He tilts his head. I mean, I love you, and this is like everything I've ever wanted. I don't want to lose you. If you wanted me to leave, I wouldn't stop you. But I like things the way they are right now. I guess that's pretty selfish of me, but I am selfish. 
I'm sorry. She sighs and walks around the table to him. I do love you, she says and places her hands on his shoulders. Cool, he replies and grins. And it's not okay that I didn't say it back. He shrugs in response and wraps his arms around her hips. It's not, she repeats, and it's not okay for you to depend on me for everything, and it's not okay for you to live like a shut-in in this house. You're a good person. Shut up, she adds quickly before he says anything to go with the growing sneer on his face. And we are going to work on your self-esteem issues. Can we work on it sexily? Whatever's been keeping her going for the last week and a half leaves her all at once. She leans against him, forehead to his collarbone. He wraps his arms around her and holds her firm, pressing kisses into her hair. Yeah, she says in answer to his question. Sure. Thank the Lord that you too have finally settled this. Jarvis comments. They manage to keep their relationship secret for another month before a group of neo-Nazis see fit to attack Stark Industries' head office. She's miles away, giving a demonstration of SI's new aircraft to the Air Force as, as part of their tentative new contract post-Hammer. Tony's meant to be doing it, and just when she's about to call and find out where the hell he is, radios begin crackling all over the base, and then she's in a B-52 on its way to L.A. The attack doesn't last long. The group aren't very well organized, and most of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s agents are currently stationed in California, so they get hit from all sides. By the time she makes it there with the Air Force, though, they still succeeded in collapsing half a building on Tony. It's the same building he was thrown into a couple of months before, its structure weakened enough from the first time that it comes down with ease. Digging him out takes the best part of two hours while Coulson tells her the situation in his normal, detached manner. The group, AIM, an offshoot of Hydra, and none of these words mean anything to her, have all been successfully caught, but before they were, they set off an electromagnetic pulse that took down all communication systems in a ten-mile radius, including the suits. He doesn't know what effect it had on the suit's life support system or the arc reactor, if any, and Jarvis has been completely cut off from Tony, isn't able to access anything to do with the suit. It's still light, just, when they get him out and help him down to street level. He's moving, mostly on his own, which makes her feel better, even if Natasha does have to use some kind of chainsaw to get his helmet off. Hey, air, nice, he says. Are you okay? Is the reactor okay? She wipes caked-on dust off it with her fingers. It glows reassuringly bright. 
He clicks his tongue. Gonna take more than a little EMP to take me down. He grins, and she does what would be one of the stupidest things she's ever done, if it weren't for the fact that doing stupid things seems to be a trend with her of late. She leans up, uses his metal shoulders as leverage, and kisses him right there in the middle of downtown L.A. with helicopters circling overhead. Footage of it hit CNN within five minutes, a day later, Stark Industries issues a press release stating that Tony Stark and Virginia Potts have been in a committed A day later, Stark Industries issues a press release stating that Tony Stark and Virginia Potts have been in a relationship for a little over three months. Every media outlet is clamoring after an exclusive interview. But after careful thought, there's really only one option that makes sense to her, despite Tony's vehement disagreement. But why? he asks, following her around the lounge as she collects his scattered projects. That woman is the devil, and she does not say nice things about me. Which is exactly why Miss Everhart is the perfect choice. Any E.T. reporter can write a puff piece about the new couple. They're calling us pepperoni, he interrupts. She stops and looks at him. But if Christine Everhart writes a positive story about you, that's going to hold some weight. I had sex with her, Pepper. Now I have sex with you. It's going to be really, really awkward. How sympathetic do you think I am about that problem? She asks and hands him the screwdrivers and pieces of motherboard that she's collected up. He puts them into the front pocket of his hoodie and sighs. Not very, he says. Bingo, she says and taps him on the nose. Clear the rest of this crap up before she gets here, okay? Ten minutes later, at precisely two o'clock, Jarvis announces, Your guest has arrived. Let her in, she says and glances at Tony. Why aren't you wearing socks? He wiggles his toes at her. I was going to paint my nails, but I got distracted. Great she says, and goes to fetch Everhart from the vast foyer. Ms. Everhart, she calls. Everhart glances up from where she was surreptitiously reading a stack of mail, as if Pepper would leave anything more incriminating than a Victoria's Secret catalog lying around. We're in here, she says and points towards the lounge. Of course. Everhart replies without even a pretense of embarrassment. She follows Pepper into the room, drops her bag on the coffee table, and starts digging through it. Hi, Tony says, shuffling up the couch away from her. Mr. Stark, she says without looking up. She rummages for a moment longer in her bag before pulling out a tape recorder. Ah, there it is. I have to say, I was surprised to get your call, Ms. Potts. I thought I was... trash? 
Tony's eyebrows jump up towards his hairline and he tilts his head in question. Pepper clears her throat. <clears throat> I was having a bad day. I'm sorry. Everhart shrugs as she turns the recorder on and sets it down carefully on the table. I've been called worse. Pepper resists the I'm sure that's dying to be said and sits down beside Tony. He leans against her side. This is going to be apocalyptically bad, he whispers to her, beard tickling against her ear. Before she can reply, there's a loud click and a flash, and when she looks up, Everhart's incredibly fake apologetic face. Needed a photo to go with the interview, she says. Shall we get to it? Vanity Fair comes out two weeks later. The picture of them that graces the cover is a year old, one taken when she started as his PA. The picture of them that graces the cover is years old, one taken when she started as his PA. They're both ridiculously baby-faced, and she remembers being terrified and awed and giddy all at once when the photo was taken with Tony's arm around her shoulders, leaning in like he was about to kiss her. He didn't, of course, and he was gone in his convertible minutes after the shoot was over. All in all, the article, The Courting of Tony Stark, isn't that bad. Everhart opens with the observation that Tony didn't bother to shave or put on clean clothes for her visit, and the leading quote is, We shared the frilly underwear which, of course, is completely out of context. What he really said was an answer to Everhart's question of who wears the pants in the relationship, that they shared the pants and the frilly underwear, too. Despite this assertion, Everhart notes that Tony deferred to Pepper on most of the questions, especially the ones to do with the transfer of power from him to her. I was bored with it, he had said in answer, as Pepper said over the top. He wanted to focus on the hands-on side of the business, not the petty administration stuff. Stark seemed unconcerned with this interruption, Everhart writes, and let Potts practice her business pitch on me for several minutes without saying a word. Every other sentence is a pointed comment of some kind at Tony, Pepper, or the company as a whole, but despite this, something almost delicate comes out. Everhart caught every look, every touch, every second of body language between them, as she admits herself, I don't think that Tony Stark is now, or ever will be, the man we need in the Iron Man suit but he sure as hell is smitten with his new CEO.